welcome Neil. This is not the media. This is hell, and we are back with a live four and a half hour. This is hell, broadcasting from the studios of Chicago Sound Experiment, WNUR 89.3 FM, Evanston, streaming live right now and podcast in its entirely shortly after, entirety shortly after, at thisishell.com. On this week's hell, we ask... What's the point in voting when both parties suck? And you'll be surprised how each party sucks and the ways in which they suck. And they don't suck in the way you think they suck. They suck even harder. Then we'll revisit Greece and try to figure out why the policy of austerity is still in place when it has failed, even increasing the Greek debt which austerity was supposed to fix in the first place. Next, we're on to Cuba and the new constitution they're working on and what that process may reveal about the future of state socialism in a new Cuba that now exists in a globalized world. After talking pointless voting, Greece in crisis, a potential new Cuba, the hits keep coming when we learn how and why capitalism is avoiding being blamed for environmental destruction, like the massive decline in the number of wild animals on our planet. We'll follow that with our regular contributor, Jeff Dorchin, who will give us a moment of truth. And then finally, in our bonus half hour this week, we'll learn, or some may just be reminded, that our political representatives in our representative democracy do a horrible job of representing what we want and how much we want what. You put all that together, and on this week's This Is Hell, it's pointless voting, the Greek crisis, a new Cuba, capitalist kills... Capitalism kills, democracy fails, Jeff has a moment of truth, and I apologize for being critical of the news media as they are clearly suffering from a troubling psychological condition, and we should all be very concerned for their mental well-being. Our guests this week are activist, organizer, and writer Andrew Dobbs. He posted the column at medium.com headlined, no, Voting Democrat is Not Harm Reduction, which was the article producer Alex shared on social media this week that had the second greatest reach. So our friends on Facebook must have loved the story. And in the future, we'll be featuring more and more news stories our listeners are following on all social media. And some people were not too happy about Andrew's writing, which argues that you're not necessarily causing less harm to poor people and minorities by voting Democrat. In fact, Andrew has the numbers that he says proves it. Andrew is a regular writer at Medium, and you can find his writing there at medium.com slash, then the at symbol, Andrew Dobbs. Follow Andrew on Twitter at AndrewDobbsTX. After we get you all angry at the radio or your computer or smartphone or however you're listening, and you're welcome because the rush of adrenaline... uh, caused by anger. It's good for your heart. So This Is Hell is good for your health, too. Another reason to support This Is Hell. After your blood gets pumping about both parties 
sucking and sucking so bad. In our second hour, we'll talk to social activist Pavlos Rufos, author of A Happy Future is a Thing of the Past, The Greek Crisis, and Other Disasters. Now, we all know corrupt Greek society created their economic crisis, and the people of Greek are, Greece are lucky to have the Troika, that's the European Commission, European Central Bank, and International Monetary Fund, uh, they're lucky to have them bailing them out in order to fix their awful debt problem. So why is Greece's debt worse than it was before the structural reforms. Why seemingly does the Troika's management of the Greek crisis, or does that seem to have created a brand new and potentially worse economic crisis for Greece? We'll find out what's happening with what nobody will call a crisis in capitalism when we talk to Pavlos, who will be here in Chicago on Monday, November 19th, Monday, November 19th, when he will be speaking at the Seminary Co-op Bookstores at 5751 South Woodlawn, beginning at 6 p.m. That's Monday, November 19th, Seminary Co-op Bookstores, 5751 South Woodlawn, and Pavlos will be uh, speaking beginning at 6 p.m. Follow Pavlos on Twitter at PRUFOS, R-U-F-O-S, to see his entire tour schedule. Pavlos has been active in Greece, Greece, uh, Greece's social movements since the 1990s. Pavlos has worked as a film editor and is currently a researcher on German economic policy at the University of Kassel. He uh, has written on Greece and the economic crisis for the Brooklyn Rail and Berlin's Jungle World. Yeah, I don't know either. No clue. In this week's third hour, International Education Director of the Mexico Solidarity Network, Dr. Thomas Hansen, posted an article at the website of the Autonomous University of Social Movements headlined, Challenges for Cuba's New Constitution. Cuba is working on a new Cuba in the form of a new constitution, and they've been working on it since 2011. But they're getting close to wrapping up the public debate to put a new Cuba up for a vote. But why now? Why has Cuba decided it needs to rewrite its defining statement of what Cuba is and will be? What would it mean for any progress toward communism in the island nation? And what could a socialist Cuba in a globalized world look like? We'll answer those questions and plenty more that I wrote while I was really stoned. When we converse with Tom, who from 1987 to 1988 organized the first national material aid caravan to Latin America as national coordinator of the Veterans Peace Convoy to Nicaragua. Tom is co-founder of the New York Nicaragua Construction Brigade and is a former director of Pastors for Peace. This is Tom's second appearance on This Is Hell, and Tom is setting a record for the longest time between appearances on This Is Hell, because the last time Tom was on was August 21st, 1999. Following our record-breaking conversation with Tom Hansen on the future of Cuba, And after this week's question from hell, which I'll tell you about in a bit, we start our fourth hour with Anna Pygott, who posted the article, Capitalism is Killing the World's Wildlife Populations, Not Humanity. And she posted that story at The Conversation. The New York Times opinion piece she wrote this week was the story Alex shared that had the single greatest reach of any article Alex shared this week. So this week, our show features conversations with the authors of the two articles that had the greatest reach with our audience on social media. So you'll want to hear Andrew Dobbs' take on pointless voting and Anna's on capitalism's killing machine in order to get a better feel for what interests your fellow listeners here on This Is Hell. 
Now, Anna's understandably upset at a new World Wildlife Federation report that somehow blames consumption by human beings and not capitalism, which we all know has nothing to do with consumption, for the massive decline in wild animal populations. The World Wildlife Fund or Federation does uh, such an intense job of tiptoeing around capitalism that you'd think they lost their lawsuit to the World Wrestling Federation decades ago. That's how good their footwork is. But by ignoring capitalism, Anna believes the World Wildlife Federation is doing a disservice to the world's wildlife. We'll get out how when we, we'll f- figure out how when we speak with Anna, who is a postdoctoral research fellow in environmental humanities at Swansea University. Anna worked as a field studies tutor and outdoor activities organizer in Dorset, Shetland, and Italy, and was a media intern for Green Futures magazine at Forum for the Future and was a sustainable behavior officer in Swansea University's sustainability team in 2012 and 2013. Is it World Wildlife Fund or World Wildlife Federation? It's driving me nuts, Alex. You got to look this up. WWF, is it fund or federation? I don't know why I put federation in here. I'm starting to think it was fund. At that point in our show, we usually have a moment of truth with Jeff Dorchin and then end the show. But not this week. Yes, Jeff will give us his signature monologue, The Moment of Truth. And this week, Jeff goes bats. But following Jeff this week, we have a bonus half hour of This Is Hell. For those of you who have been jonesing for This Is Hell, as we have been yet again abbreviated and completely preempted during Northwestern University's football season, during our bonus 30 minutes, we will talk to Leah Stokes. Assistant Professor of Political Science at the University of California, Santa Barbara, who co-published along with her colleagues Alexander Hurdle Fernandez and Matto Mildenberger, the research paper State Capture, How Conservative Activists, Big Business, and Wealthy Donors Reshaped the American States and the Nation. Turns out that our representatives in our representative democracy have no clue as to what we want or our priorities. Instead, They believe the public is far more conservative than it really is. See, interest groups, especially those from big business, tell representatives' aides what the world is like, and then those aides give that misrepresentation to their boss, and suddenly you got people in Congress running farther and farther to the right. Yep, access of the wealthy to the powerful is creating a country catering to elites. We'll drain the swamp and see whose feet got wet when we talk to Leah, who is currently writing a book on fossil fuel opposition to renewable and renewables policy. Leah is affiliated with the Bren School of Environmental Science and Management, as well as the Environmental Studies Department at the University of California, Santa Barbara. All that stuff plus rotten history, a shed load of listener feedback. We'll find out what Alex has been up to on social media. We share a couple new podcasts exclusively for Patreon subscribers to This Is Hell at patreon.com slash thisishell that we want to tell you about as well as next week's Patreon podcast. Of course, we'll have the question from Hell. We also want to thank some listeners for supporting This Is Hell and sharing the show online. Maybe we'll get to twist off knowledge. We've got an extra half hour. And of course, what's happening on upcoming episodes of This Is Hell. I'm your bitter, blind, broke, gap-toothed radio show host, Chuck Mertz, producer this week's This Is Hell is Alex Jerry. Alex, what's new by you and what does WWF stand That's for? Fund. It it's is fund. fund. Uh, well, I just completed my citizenship application and I just want to say, set a couple things clear. First of all, a lot of people post on our Twitter and Facebook. It's not just me doing that. So who can say who posted what on Twitter or Facebook in the last five years? Uh, second of all, I've just got to say, 
communism killed a hundred million people. That's a very convenient and broad and powerful <laughs> number. So I'm aware of that. Uh, th- this microphone was made under capitalism. <laughs> communism uh, just doesn't work, everyone. So I think I just like that to be. Uh, I didn't book Jody Dean those two times. Whoever refers to them as their favorite person on Twitter, it could have been anyone working on this show. Who can say who posts what? Um, if we were, if you know, if we were that far on the left, would we have a Patreon? So just if we have a new listener, uh, anyone doing any sort of background research, hi, uh, God bless America, God bless property. Uh, we should all just take initiative and work harder and pull ourselves up by our own bootstraps. Thanks, everyone. This is Hell is Broadcast Live Without Interruption on WNUR 89.3 FM, Evanston, Chicago Sound Experiment. Streaming live online at our website, thisishell.com. Podcast shortly after at the same place in its entirety at thisishell.com and now airing an abbreviated one-hour version on Sunday mornings in Moscow, Idaho on KRFP and on Lumpen Radio on Chicago's South Side. Brave enough to be live, dumb enough to be goofy, stupid enough to think that we can be a regular part of your weekly hangover. This is hell. And uh, Alex has this week's hangover cure. It's going to be really funny when I don't get my citizenship approved. (laughs) This week's hangover cure is Max's Morning Reviver. In an article posted at the Standard of London headlined, The Best Sandwiches to Cure a Hangover in London, they start their list by reporting, Max Halley of Max's Sandwich Shop in Finsbury Park is wheeling out Max's Morning Reviver for the Christmas season. It's a saucy number that will be uh, touring the UK with the help of a commercial partnership with Tabasco (laughs) from a street food van in Victoria Station on December 7th, followed by Leeds and Birmingham. Between slabs of focaccia, you'll find smoked turkey, Bloody Mary ketchup, baby gem lettuce, a fried egg, shoestring fries, and turkey gravy mayo with lashings of, yes, Tabasco, but there's also a vegetarian option. Then they quote Max's Morning Reviver's namesake saying, a hangover should feel like the sun coming up. (laughs) Excuse me. We all struggle in the mornings when it's dark and cold, and you just need a pick-me-up. That way, that makes this week's Hangover Cure Max's Morning Reviver. I don't really get how your hangover is supposed to feel like the sun coming up. Why, did you get a horrible pounding headache and cotton mouth and feel like you want to puke and die because the sun is coming up? I don't like Max's worldview of the sunrise. You are listening to God's favorite radio show. Prove us wrong. This is hell. On election day this week during our podcast at patreon.com slash this is hell, I described my voting experience here in Chicago and explained what I was voting for and what I wasn't. The following day, Wednesday, the day after the vote, on yet another podcast for Patreon subscribers, I gave my take on what happened during cable TV news coverage on election night. So I gave a preview of the vote on Tuesday, and the following day I gave a review. And unsurprisingly, in that review of cable TV news coverage on election night, I was pretty mean. And I didn't even mention how CNN's Wolf Blitzer warned his viewing audience, Coming up, we have a huge projection for you. Or that I was playing the drinking or smoking game, depending on your taste where you do a shot or a hit every time CNN's John King said, Let's see how this plays out. Yes, John. Let's see how the election plays out. That's why I'm friggin' here watching you finger that friggin' touchscreen. As an aside, I never say friggin' other than being here on the airways. I say the actual grown-up word it replaces within FCC rules which infantilize the audience, our culture, and society. During the Patreon podcast, 
I actually have the freedom to swear without the fear of being fined by the government. It's not that I want to swear all the time, but I don't want to have to think about not swearing. I don't want to be thinking about not saying any word because I don't want to self-censor in any way as I think it's a slippery slope to dishonesty and inauthenticity. And as an aside, within an aside, here's another of the, the many lessons of Chuck's book of radio lessons. Never, ever write profanities into a script. If you do, reading them will seem forced and fake. And profanities are the most honest words in the English language. And they need to be treated with, and they deserve your highest level of respect. Now, during my post-election media analysis this week, as I've done in much of my media criticism during the lifetime, the lifespan of This Is Hell, I took what some of the news media might call cheap shots at the news media, arguing that there is an epidemic of the Stockholm Syndrome over at MSNBC with Rachel Maddow being excited about the prospect of a Mississippi Senate runoff, which I'm pretty certain is also the name of a sex act, and her colleague... Chris Hayes claiming from Beto O'Rourke election headquarters that Beto still had a chance of winning the election despite Hayes' own network moments earlier giving incumbent Senator Ted Cruz the victory. Claiming Maddow and Hayes have some sort of psychological conditions, that's not nice, it's not polite, and it does a disservice to those who suffer from a potentially debilitating disorder. But hear me out. If every day you woke up and immediately plugged yourself into the daily zeitgeist of whatever news broke or shattered overnight, then worked in a place where everyone around you is doing the same thing, all sharing information on the singular moment's events, which gives you all that high of being the first to know with the fleeting belief that this news is the most important happening in world history. If you worked in that environment, it'd be pretty hard for you to not fall prey to the vicissitudes of the Stockholm Syndrome. MSNBC's Maddow and Hayes have been taken captive by their bosses. And in order to survive, and especially in order for them to thrive as much as they have, they've made a psychological alliance with their boss and the job that they have been given by their boss. In capitalism, you are your job. And there's a reason that in capitalism, the word job has attained the slang definitions of meaning to destroy, defeat, damage, confound, thoroughly deceive, persuade, charm glibly, or to snow. That's what your job is. It's a strategy to deceive. To survive in the workplace, we must lie to ourselves if we want to be happy on the job, if we want to get more money faster so you can get the hell out of that job. It's not only those in the news media like Maddow and Hayes that are suffering from Stockholm Syndrome in a world that is being held captive by corporate interests. We all are. I worked in restaurants filled with the most offensive humor you have ever heard, and within only weeks I was laughing at every joke and away from work. I would stop myself from saying something truly awful with my friends, and I'm certain that we cannot, that every one of you, you wouldn't recognize yourself at work if you saw yourself. Our attempts to get money so we can eat, clothe, and house ourselves have a direct impact on us. And when we watch cable TV news, for instance, as I did on election night, we are watching people at work. Can you imagine a channel where people would watch you at work? How embarrassing would it be 
to show others how much of a sellout you are, how much your personality changes when you're on the clock and around the water fountain. It would be humiliating, and your friends would laugh their asses off at your expense. But we actually watch people who work in the news media contort themselves to their bosses and jobs demands, so it's easy to criticize them as they dance for cash. With apologies to Otto von Bismarck, and sorry for that whole Hitler thing too, jobs are like sausages, it is better not to see them being done. The problem with the sausage grinding that happens within the news media is the meat they're grinding is people's lives. Worse yet, the sausages they're grinding they, they have all sorts of ingredients the news media completely ignores, as if that mysterious sausage of unknown stuffing has been encased in a vacuum, then cut into finite-length pieces so the tasty morsel can be served up for easy consumption. Determining where one sausage of news ends and the other begins without the connective tissue of context leaves the audience not seeing the big sausage. On top of missing the big sausage by disconnecting one news story from the next, the context for that sausage making is completely discarded and left on a floor strewn with the entrails of moments that led up to the news and the sinew of the news' potential impact on the future. But damn, sometimes that sausage can be delicious, and I don't want to know what's inside because I already know what's in there. Deliciousness. Like all of us, whether they are sausage makers, we're sausage makers, or we're cable TV news personalities, our attempts at earning money make us something we're not. Protecting a system that, if we looked at it on paper, we wouldn't support. And working in the media skews your views, as any job does. All our work deceives us into accepting our plight so we can survive, or to a greater extent, play fealty so we can thrive. It's not only the news media that suffers from Stockholm Syndrome, captured by corporate interests with whom they now find themselves allied. In capitalism, we're all suffering from Stockholm Syndrome. And despite, despite being told that Stockholm is a very nice place to visit, that's why. This is Hell, and this week's question from Hell is... What's a catchier name for the Anthropocene? What's a catchier name for the Anthropocene? All replies get read on air during the third hour of this week's This Is Hell, our favorite ones of book we're going to be featuring in the second hour of this week's show, A Happy Future is a Thing of the Past, The Greek Crisis, and Other Disasters by our second guest on this week's show, Pavlos Rufos. Again, the question from hell is, what is a catchier name for the Anthropocene? Leave your response now at our Facebook page, facebook.com slash thisishellradio, and listen during the third hour of this we show to hear all the responses and to find out if you have one. Coming up on this week's This Is Hell, the pointlessness of voting, the crisis capitalism continues to face in Greece, a new constitution for a new Cuba, capitalism is an environmental killing machine, a moment of truth where Jeff goes bats, and your elected officials think you're more conservative than you are. All that stuff plus rotten history, whole bunch of listener feedback, what Alex has been up to on social media, what we've been up to on Patreon, the question from hell, maybe some twist-off knowledge. We want to thank some listeners for supporting This Is Hell and others for sharing This Is Hell. Manufacturing dissent since 1996. This is hell. You vote because there are others who are not as privileged as you are, who may not be able to get to a polling place, who may 
have been disenfranchised in some way, maybe in the state of Georgia or Wisconsin or Illinois or Iowa, North Dakota, Arizona, Colorado, West Virginia, Ohio, Indiana, Michigan, or any number of states that unfairly purge Americans' right to vote this past election day. You vote because they cannot, and you represent their concerns when you go to the ballot box protecting the marginalized and the poor from the rich and powerful. At least that's what you hope you're doing. But in ways you may not yet know, you may not be doing anybody any good by voting. Here to explain, activist, organizer, and writer Andrew Dobbs posted an article at Medium headlined, No, Voting Democrat is Not Harm Reduction. Welcome to This Is Hell, Andrew. Hey, thanks for having me. Andrew is a regular writer at Medium, and you can find his writing there at medium.com slash, and then the at sign, Andrew Dobbs, and you can follow him on Twitter at Andrew Dobbs TX, and you can also support Andrew's work at Patreon at Patreon.com/slash Andrew Dobbs. I want to talk about an article you wrote back in August, just at the beginning here, just a little bit. You had an article headlined uh, "Nationalists, Technocrats, and Urbanists: A Theory of Today's Politics." In it, you write, "U.S. politics is experiencing the final consolidation of a major realignment. On one side are the nationalists, dominant now in the Republican Party; on the other side are the technocrats at the head of the Democratic Party. One is centered in rural and exurban areas and in regions dependent upon extraction and industry; the other is focused in cities where finance, tech." technology, cultural production, education, and government dominate. To what extent did you see that not only during the most recent political campaign, but on election night 2018 as well? How much did you see your argument reinforced by this election campaign as well as election night? Yeah, no, that's a great question. And I think it was heavily reinforced. Where I really see this actually is in that kind of relentless you got to vote, you got to vote, you got to vote. How dare you say don't vote? How dare you argue that the Democrats aren't, you know, objectively and supremely better than the Republican Party, that you're hearing from a lot of people on the liberal side of the argument, especially like the kind of liberal left. And the reason that they're making that argument is because for them, the Democratic Party is better. And it's better because it serves their class interests, Right. Um, and so I think that you've seen this argument being made repeatedly because, you know, from an objective standpoint, or from a subjective standpoint of these people's perspective, you know, the Democratic Party is going to serve their interests for the next few years. It's going to do a lot of things to try and uh, reinforce the kind of neoliberal corporate order that uh, has benefited those fractions of the ruling class. And it will kind of push back against some of the, the advances that the other side has made in the last couple of years. But this is an internal debate within the bourgeoisie. It is not something that actually has any meaningful benefit for working people or the poor. Those people keep getting you know, harmed over and over again. I think the other big thing here is that what both sides of that class divide have in common is a commitment and an investment in U.S. imperialism. Um, and imperialism is not just a choice of policy. It is a, a necessary set of imperatives that are imposed upon us by this stage of our economic and social development. And so they, because they are both pursuing that, they are both tied to that system. And there was almost no debate on that whatsoever that I heard. You know, I didn't hear any Democrats saying, hey, let's cut the military budget. Let's withdraw forces from overseas. Let's, you know, rectify, you know, the wrongs that we've committed here. So I think that, you know, I think that the arguments that I make in that piece in August 
were absolutely reinforced. The final thing I'll say here is that one of the arguments that I make in that in that piece that's sort of prompted by a lot of my personal activism and personal political exposure here in the city of Austin, Texas, where I live, um, it has to do with the way that this urbanist argument has been put forward, this idea that, you know, what we really need to do in order to make everything more affordable is, you know, just increase supply of housing. We need to get rid of any kind of, you know, land use regulation and, you know, scrape everything and build high rises as far as the eye can see, and it'll solve all of our problems. You know, this, this kind of argument really won the day in a lot of places. I feel like in California, you saw the defeat of Prop 10, which would have restored a lot of local rights to impose rent control. And, you know, even here in Texas, where you had uh, Robert, quote-unquote, Beto O'Rourke as a Democratic nominee that had some sort of national, you know, presence and in- source of inspiration, you know, this guy's background is one of supporting, you know, aggressive gentrification against working-class communities. So I feel like the, the Democratic side definitely consolidated that idea within its ranks, and I think that, that if anything else, if nothing else, that was really harmful to working and poor people. So when you see on election night MSNBC cheerleading for Beto O'Rourke, what does that reveal to you about MSNBC? They always try to package themselves as a progressive station. What does the kind of support that they were showing for Beto O'Rourke reveal to you about a, a media outlet like MSNBC? Yeah, I mean, I think that it represents that he, that they support the same kind of wing of the ruling class or of the kind of middle classes that that that, that O'Rourke did, which is you know the kind of educated cultural production, technological production, you know, socially, you know, more liberal, um, but still, quote-unquote, fiscally conservative kind of end of things, as well as uh, the the real investment in this kind of urban vision of, you know, of redevelopment and whatnot. I think that, you know, and then also the kind of uh, complete disregard for any critique of U.S. imperialism, of even a lot of the other things that, like, I mean, I never really heard him go after the oil industry, which is, you know, our dominant industry in the state, because he knew he was going to lose. So it's that kind of uh, performative thing that kind of uh, focused on the more cultural and social end of things and not really getting at the heart of why is it that people are exploited and poor in this country? Why is it that the world is the way that it is? And what can we do to change it? You know, there's there's a, a sense of how can we make people feel good about themselves without challenging their investment in a system of investment. And you write that in cities across the country, urbanists have hijacked discussions about affordable housing so that even self-identified leftists believe it to be something other than what it is, a power grab for the ruling class. Why don't self-identified leftists recognize it as a power grab for the ruling class? Well, I think that it goes back to the fact that most self-identified leftists in the United States tend to be uh, part of the middle class in one way or the other. If you look at what their actual class position is, what their actual position in production is, you know, a lot of them work for non-governmental organizations of one sort or another, right? Um, They work in academia. They often, maybe they do work in the private sector, in the for-profit sector, but they work in something technological or cultural in production, right? So they don't necessarily really want to challenge the fundamental uh, system of, of U.S. capitalism. Furthermore, all of us, including many sectors of the U.S. working class, benefit from imperialism. 
You know, we extract tremendous amounts of wealth from the developing world and bring it back to this country and then distribute it in various ways across the population. And so when people don't necessarily really want to challenge that. And, you know, really, the urbanist argument is an imperialist capitalist one at its heart. And so they want to try and find ways of splitting the difference, and they will adopt that. The final thing, I think, is a kind of uh, political economic ignorance. You know, you'll hear uh, them say things like, in fact, I've heard political figures here in Austin say, well, it's economics 101, that, you know, supply and demand are here. And it's like, yeah, there is economics 101 where you're talking about supply and demand. There's also economics 201 and 301 and 401 and a lot of classes past 101. And there's economic forces at play that you may not address with that, but they rely upon people kind of relying upon that ninth grade education in economics rather than people having spent the time to critically educate themselves on the actual forces at play. The last thing I'll make on that is that a, a problem that we see on the so-called left or on the actual left that runs the thread throughout all these arguments that we're talking about today is the era of economism, right? Which is the idea that everything would be boiled down to economic forces or that quantitative changes or quantitative factors are determining determinative of these things. When in truth, really, there's some qualitative arguments at play here. And it's not just dollars and cents and economic forces at play. When it comes to housing, it's not that if we build a bunch more housing, then suddenly we're going to see rents drop. The reason that rents are going up isn't because of a lack of supply. The reason that rents are going up is because landlords raise rents because that's how they make their money. So if we want to see rents go down, we need to undermine or reduce the power of the landlord class in our housing sector. And that's what we really need to do. And everything else that we're debating about whether or not we should build this or that or the other is really secondary. In fact, it benefits them and it makes things worse over time because they're going to be able to keep raising the rents because they're going to maintain the power that they have now. You know, I was just stuck on this whole idea of our inability to address the fact that we profit, that we benefit from imperialism allows imperialism to continue forward. So is that, do you think that's the greatest obstacle that we have for challenging imperialism here in the United States and for so many of the other concomitant problems that we have with it, that we are unable and unwilling to uh, admit that, you know, this empire that we have, it's good for our bottom line? Yeah, I, I do. I believe so. I believe that, I, you know, I, I hate to, there's some political theories out there and, and movements that are, that really dig in deep on this. And I think they kind of take some bad uh, conclusions from this, you no know, so-called third worldists and whatnot, that kind of abandon any hope of the United States ever having a, a, an authentic revolutionary left or something like that. I don't necessarily buy that because I believe that there are colonized and exploited communities within the United States that imperialism has, has operates at home as well, and those are the revolutionary, that's revolutionary potential that we have here. But setting that aside, yeah, absolutely. It's like, you know, Ingalls was talking about uh, England in the uh, 19th century, and he said, you know, even their workers are bourgeoisie at this point. And that's, the, that's one of the major functions of imperialism, is to use exploitation far away from home, out of sight, out of mind, to generate resources that can be used to buy off potentially revolutionary elements here on these shores, right? And then to use uh, racism and other imperialist and colonialist 
uh, institutions and doctrines to divide workers in this country in order to make sure that they can't organize and, and revolt. So, yeah, absolutely. I believe that imperialism is something that benefits uh, almost everybody in the United States and that or at least a large portion of the population, and especially the portion of the population that the electoral system is focused on. You know, that's why the people who vote vote. They're voting to determine how are we going to divide the spoils amongst ourselves. And that's why the people who don't vote don't vote, because they know that no matter what happens, they're going to get almost none of it. In your more recent story, No Voting Democrat is Not Harm Reduction, you write, We've heard from our friends and comrades for weeks how about the importance of setting aside whatever qualms we have with this imperialist party and holding our noses to vote for them. This used to be called choosing the lesser evil, but that branding has gotten stale, and so a new generation of NGO nicks have started calling it harm reduction. The idea is that things will get so much worse if the GOP wins and will be somewhat better if the Democrats win. So we should just get the Democrats elected so we can minimize harm while we do our other more impactful organizing. But is this true? If so, it would be news to the very poor and exploited communities these folks claim to be looking out for. Most of them do not vote and did not vote in this election. They have seen different election results over time with nothing really to show for either side. To what extent does running politically to the center in order to take away independent votes from the other side, instead of running toward the base to energize those that are more likely to vote for you. Uh, how much does that, how much does that running to the center lead to elections doing nothing for the poor and exploited? What role does Democratic Party centrism play in any sense that the poor may have, uh, the poor and exploited, uh, exploited may have, that politically, no matter the outcome of any vote, nothing gets done for them? Yeah, I think that I think it plays a role, but I don't know that that's the central role, right, that it plays. I think that, for one thing, you know, if the Democratic Party ran to the left and did put forward a left program, that it probably wouldn't be allowed to carry it out. And if it tried to carry it out, there would be all sorts of economic sabotage that would prevent it from actually coming to fruition, and they would lose the next election or the one right after that in order to... to prevent that. And I think that they make that argument. I think the party leaders make the argument that if we do this, we're going to lose elections. And there's some truth to it. It's maybe not the truth that the public at large is hyper-conservative, but it is true that we've seen in places like Venezuela, right, where, you know, a left, obviously nobody has proposed that we go anywhere close to what Chavez did there. But you see that when they put forward a left-wing program, when they institute socialism, that you know, without removing the dominant economic forces, that those forces were able to sabotage the economy, which has undermined their political position and created chaos, has now created the conditions that are necessary for the United States or now the fascist government, incoming government in Brazil, to justify an invasion or other kind of military incursion there, right? And so obviously we don't have to face those same kinds of threats, but I do think that any kind of left-wing pursuit in the United States would be sabotaged almost immediately. Um, unless you could, in some way, remove or suppress the power of those economic forces. So, you know, I think that's, I think that's part of it. I think that it's just not really possible. But setting that aside, I think that, you know, again, the Democratic Party is attempting to appeal to, it's just all, both major parties are, that what they exist to do is they exist as ruling class parties, right? They exist to promote and protect the interests of capitalism, which is the system of rule by the capitalist class, right? And so they exist to perpetuate that system, 
But under a liberal order that we designed, that was designed in this country, they need a mass base. And so they go after different sectors of the middle class in order to support that and create a class collaboration between those middle class and the ruling class. And so because they need that kind of broad base of support, yeah, they're absolutely kind of downplaying the left. And they're certainly downplaying any kind of meaningful advance for the poor, exploited, and the working class because that's not what the system is designed to do. It is designed to exploit and marginalize those people, not mobilize them. The only times when those people have been significantly mobilized under our system were, were not times when they were trying to create a coalition with those folks. It was times when they were forced to make concessions to those folks because of the independent political power of the working class that had been developed by militant labor unions and, and revolutionary political parties. You know, so I, I think that uh, if we want to see the politics of this country move to the left, we need to organize working people, the exploited and the poor, um, into revolutionary uh, political and economic formations. And then you might see them try to throw some concessions at us. But even then, I don't know that the conditions exist to be able to do that, and, and it could force a crisis upon the system that, that they could not sustain. When we shared your article on social media, one person, Polly, commented on our Facebook page, I abhor Democrats for all the reasons cited, but the lesser evil argument has actually become pretty valid as the Republicans have slid into insanity. In your opinion, has the lesser evil argument actually become, as Polly argues, pretty valid as the Republicans, in Polly's view, have slid into insanity? Does it make more sense, say, in 2018 than it did in 2016 or 2014 to vote against the Republicans because of what Polly calls their slide toward insanity? No, not at all. And first off, you know, I, I do find the uh, the kind of use of insane like that to be an ableist uh, kind of argument that that really does uh, marginalize and, and uh, insult people with mental health challenges. Um, and so I think we all, it's something that it's something that I try not to be harsh on people about because it's so endemic in our language, but it's something we all need to work on because it's a, it's a really effective way of marginalizing uh, people who, who have those challenges, which, is, which are endemic also among the poor and working class because of the trauma that they sustain all the time. So I think it's important to keep in mind, but setting that aside, uh, no, I don't think that it's that different because, yeah, I think that I think that the Trump phenomenon uh, is something that has that that has obsessed the left and liberals without them being able to take a step back and say what is really happening here, right? Donald Trump and the politicians that sound, that have started to sound like him because they've seen his success, um, they are really outrageous sounding. They 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 say things. And even sometimes do things that are just shocking and that are, you know, loathsome, right? But if you step back and ask, what are the actual policy implications? What are they actually doing? Hey, I think that they're not that much different than what any Republican would have done. And B, I feel like this policy is in many ways a continuation of what George W. Bush and Barack Obama did in terms of the kind of perpetuating corporate power that we've seen over and over again. You know, the big differences have to do with things like the immigration uh, immigration policies, which are horrific. But if you actually listen, and this is something else that's really important, I think, about this. People have responded to this argument, this article, by saying, well, we need the Democrats to stop X, Y, and Z. And then you ask, did the Democrats ever say that they were going to do that or not? Because I never heard a lot of Democrats propose 
really strong pro-immigration policy. I never heard most of them say, hey, you know what, this caravan that everybody's freaking out about, we need to bring those people into our country. We need to, we need those people in our country. We need to rescue those people from the conditions that we've created in Central America. I, I didn't hear that. I didn't hear people say, you know, people talk about the child detention. I mean, I didn't hear a lot of Democrats say, we need to end that system. We need to actually stop detaining people at all for trying to come into this country. We need to have open borders. You know, that would be a, that would be a, a stance that, that would make a difference. You also didn't hear people. The other big things that you see that are different between Trump and previous administrations are things like the so-called trade war, which, you know, that's, that's, that's a little bit more ambiguous as to whether or not where that, that, that lies on the kind of political spectrum. Um, I feel like it's something that's freaked out a lot of bankers and whatnot, but they, and I'm not saying that it's a good thing, um, but I will say that it's a lot more ambiguous. So, I mean, when people actually press and say, set aside the kind of rhetoric and the kind of, you know, showmanship and look at what's actually happening, it's pretty conventional and it's pretty much in line with what Democrats and Republicans and everybody else have, has done for decades now. You write that when you look at the Gini coefficients, they're the best standard for determining the uh, situation with the economy, uh, by state found that the top five states for income inequality include three of the most liberal Democrat-dominated states, New York, Connecticut, and California. The five least unequal states include three of the most conservative, Alaska, Utah, and Wyoming, with New Hampshire a GOP-leaning competitive state and Hawaii as a blue state. In general, there seems to be very little correlation between income... Er, between inequality and partisan affiliation. So what does that reveal to you about the state of governance? Is the Democratic Party purposely misleading the public, or is it that their uh, their policies inadvertently lead to unintended consequences that cause inequality? Is this the outcome of being lied to, or is this the outcome of poor policy? I mean, I think it's probably more the latter, but Really, do you hear Democrats saying that they're going to fix inequality? Again, this is one of those things that people assume that that's what they're going to do, or they, they presume that because people want them to do that, and they've kind of projected this onto the Democratic Party, which as a liberal party, you know, doesn't really have much in the way of, of firm commitments, and so it's able to be this tabula rasa that people can project their politics onto, but I don't hear them saying that they're going to do much in the way of inequality. So I think that they're doing exactly what they say they're going to do. They basically say, I'm going to be pro-business. I'm going to make sure that everybody has jobs. I'm going to promote you know, investment, blah, 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 which are all kind of you know, these euphemisms for I'm going to strengthen the, the power of the capitalist class. I'm going to deepen the, you know, the, our commitment to, to capitalist production. I'm going to protect the ruling class and its interests. And then they say, but we're also going to do things like, you know, expand these few, you know, quantitative kind of economistic programs that you'll have a few more goodies to go along with. And I think that's the, and, and then some social things that we're going to make sure you don't have done, right? Um, that sort of stuff. I think that, that that middle piece, that kind of economistic thing, is a really important one. Maybe in some instances, Democrats will give us a little bit more in the way of, uh, of some goodies, right? They'll give us a few more uh, programs of various sorts. But those things are always quantitative, right? They're always just, you're going to have a little bit more and or maybe a little bit less. Never qualitative. They're never, you're going to move from being an exploited part of society, an oppressed part of society, to being equally invested in the society with some real equity 
to you. There's never that kind of change. It's always just a kind of, you know, handout system. And frankly, that is also very easily revoked because you can always just reduce or, 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 or increase quantitative changes. Those qualitative changes require a kind of revolutionary transformation to undo, right? And so they don't ever want to make any of those. They only just give us a little bit more, a little bit less. And as soon as they lose again, those things are reversed. Um, and so I think that I think that they're I think that they are doing exactly what they tell us they're going to do. But people assume that they're going to do something else because that's what they want them to do, regardless of whether they say that they're going to do that or not. So, how much does your research reveal that government, no, or political parties, I should say, no matter their policies, have a limited impact on the econ- on, on our economy and other circumstances that lead to growing? inequality because we've talked to Dean Baker, you know, dozens and dozens of times. And a long time ago we used to always have this conversation about how the president, whoever is sitting in the White House, does not have as much impact in their political party and their policies do not have as much of an impact on the economy as the media and their political parties would lead us to believe. So how much does your research reveal that uh political parties and their policies have uh, relatively limited impact on our economy relative to what they say it will do to the economy. Yeah, I mean, I think that what was really interesting is that some people have responded to this by quibbling with, well, you know, if you look at this part of this chart, you know, that's when the Democrats were here. And, and, you know, by the way, it was always mixed in this part and whatnot. You know, really, sure, maybe sometimes I got it a little bit wrong on some of them, but I don't think that really matters. I think that the big picture is to look at all of these charts you took everything that's in that article and you laid them out in front of somebody who's, who doesn't know American recent American history, and you say, hey, look at these charts, and using them, indicate to me when one party was, in, was more powerful than the other, and then when the other one switched and was more powerful than the previous one. You know, tell me when those changes in alignment happened according to these charts. And it would be impossible to do so. I think the most important chart of all is the one that indicates average wages, and it goes from two th- it goes from 1973 to 2017, so that is 44 years. That goes from, you know, Jimmy Carter all the way to uh, Donald Trump. It goes from, I think, Carl Albert was probably the, the Speaker of the House, all the way to, uh, to Nancy Pelosi again, or, or I guess Paul Ryan here. You know, it goes from, you know, Democrats, you know, having a huge upswing after the the uh, Watergate hearings and whatnot, all the way to Donald Trump and the Trump takeover, right? It goes across all of that history, you know, almost half a century of history. We're talking, you know, probably about 20% of the entire history of the United States of America in that chart. And there is no difference across it in average wages for working people. It is just a little bit of noise, all at the same level, whether you are working stiff in 1973, 1983, 1993, 2003, 2013, or right now in 2018, it hasn't made a difference who is in charge. So, I mean, I, I don't, I, I, and I don't think that that's necessarily that there's this. I think that there is a certain factor. What you're talking about is that they overplay their power, but I think also that they that this is just exactly what they say that they're going to do. They tell us that they're going to benefit corporate power. They they come up with nice ways of putting that. They never say that they're going to challenge the ruling class. They never really talk about that. When people do, like, say, Bernie Sanders is, is flawed and limited as his program really was, and he at least mentions these things, and the Democratic Party pulls out all the stops to suppress him and to 
make sure that he can sabotage his campaign and make sure that he can't do it. They would rather lose with Hillary Clinton. They would rather lose with the ruling class than win against them. And that is the message across the board, across that entire history. So I think that I think that you're right that it doesn't make a big difference who's in charge. It doesn't make a big difference which party is, is ruling, uh, especially when it comes to what working and poor people are experiencing on a day-to-day basis. To what extent did your research then reveal any bipartisan nature to economic policy, that these economic outcomes cross party lines because, more so than ever, economic policies cross party lines? Yeah, I mean, I didn't necessarily see that in writing this specific article, but, you know, just my experience and my work for years, and I think that all of us that are probably listening to to this program know that you know, when it comes to the really important stuff, there is no big difference between the, the two political parties. You know, there are these, like I said, again, the quantitative kinds of differences so that, you know, corporate corporate power gets a little bit lower taxes with the GOP and maybe a little bit higher with the Democrats. Maybe there's a little bit more in the way of food stamps or something like that under the Democrats as opposed to the GOP. But the actual qualitative policies are, are functionally the same across both parties. You know, there is no, there is no, like, you know, the Democratic Party, for all of its uh, benefits from organized labor, has done virtually nothing to actually make it easier to form a union in this country. Why? Because they know that that'll undermine the interests of their patrons and of their class support. You know, there's a variety of other policies like that also. Even something like Medicare for All, which is like the furthest left position that the Democratic Party feels like it can possibly tolerate at this point. That Medicare for All says we're going to pay existing private health care companies. We're just going to transfer public monies to these private health care institutions you know, as one single payer. They don't say we're going to nationalize the health care industry, right? They don't say we're going to take over. We're going to end profit-making off of people's health altogether, right? There is a presumption that corporate power should retain itself, that we should remain, we should re- protect the rights of the ruling class to make money off of our suffering, right? It's just that we're going to change the way that we pay for it. And while that would be a benefit, don't get it twisted. That would be a good thing in some ways. It's still not fundamentally different. It is still not a qualitative change in the structure of power in this country. And that's what we really need if we're going to see any of those charts make a difference. So, Andrew, uh, is your research, this, this lack of difference in outcomes for racial minorities, uh, no matter the party in power, is this proof of institutional racism, of a deep systemic problem that neither party is addressing, and their policies are both exacerbating the problem of racial economic inequality? Do you think that your the charts that you use, the research that you did, is very stark evidence of institutional racism across party lines? Yeah, absolutely. I do think it's that. And I think that, by the way, you know, the best indicator of these things, <coughs> excuse me, is not just looking at charts. It's actually talking to working people, especially working and poor people of color, who overwhelmingly do not vote, right? And if you ask them why they don't vote, you know, there's this presumption on the part of, like, white liberals that they don't vote because they're lazy or they're stupid or they just don't care or something like that. But if you actually talk to these people, they're not lazy. They work in two and three jobs. They're not stupid. They've managed to raise families while doing that. And to maintain their, and to you know, to survive to this point, they don't 
It's not that they don't care. Obviously, if they didn't care, they wouldn't put that much effort into their lives. It's that they know that it doesn't make a difference for them, right? That it doesn't really make a difference who's in charge when. And it's really interesting because, you know, what, what's happened is uh, the system of institutional racism, one of the tools that it's done, and I talked about that this in that previous piece that you mentioned, the nationalists and technocrats piece, is that they have is that we've essentially figured out a system where, you know, we shove all people of color into one of the political parties, regardless of what their actual interests or class position or or anything else may be. Right? Obviously, there are some exceptions, and and, and, and there's some bipartisanship at the upper echelons of these classes. But we basically say, all working people of color, you're in the Democratic Party, whether or not this actually represents your interests, or your perspectives, or anything else. Um, and that's been a very effective way at you know, at, at, at watering them down. And in fact, the kind of lesser evilism and the so-called harm reduction argument is a great way at, at suppressing their political demand. You know, it's like rather, you know, rather than saying we're going to address it, it's like, well, you, we don't care. You got to vote for us because if you don't, then the, the Klan's coming after you, right? That is, that is a really uh, abusive system. And it's, it's important that we start to think about how can we develop independent political power for communities of color that don't require them to be dependent upon uh, party dominated by white supremacists and the wealthy, which is what the Democratic Party is dominated by. One last question for you, Andrew. We have been speaking with activist, organizer, and writer Andrew Dobbs, who posted an article at Medium headlined, No, Voting Democrat is Not Harm Reduction. Andrew is a regular writer at Medium, and you can find his writing there at medium.com slash, and then the at sign, Andrew Dobbs. Follow Andrew on Twitter at Andrew Dobbs TX and support Andrew's work at patreon.com slash Andrew Dobbs. One last question for you, Andrew. And as it is with all of our guests, our final question is the question from hell, the question we hate to ask, you may hate to answer, or our audience is going to hate your response. Uh, so our question from hell for you is Polly, the commenter on social media who believes there's a difference between the parties. Uh, she, uh, he wrote that, or I'm sorry, they wrote that they are transgender and that impact, uh, and that impacts their decision in voting Democrat. Isn't one area the parties differ is the degree to which rights are expanded or limited while they are in office. Isn't a vote for Democrats a vote for expanded rights while a vote for Republicans a vote against expanding rights? Yeah, and I think it's a very important question. And, you know, hey, I will say this, you know, far be it from me as a cis white dude in Texas to tell, you know, a trans person that they're wrong or that they shouldn't vote this way, if that's what makes them feel more secure, you know, I mean, I get it, right? And I, and I understand that a lot of people are still going to vote one way or the other. And I'm not trying to moralize and tell people that their individual choices are wrong or something like that. I'm trying to make a bigger structural argument and to change people's priorities and perspectives if I can. Um, but what I would say is this, is that, you know, most of the trans people I know are pretty radical and militant and revolutionary. And I think a lot of them recognize that, again, this is a kind of source, this is a kind of system of projection, right? Yes, the Republican Party does come after these rights, but I didn't hear the Democrats, any Democrats really campaign on the issue of trans rights, A. B, it was Nancy Pelosi herself and uh, Barney Frank that just 10 years ago or 11 years ago explicitly carved trans people out of the Employee Non-Discrimination Act. So if we're talking about, you know, proven history of defining trans people out of basic rights, then Nancy Pelosi has done that just as much as Donald Trump. 
And there's this presumption that she has changed. But what that indicates is that when she believes that it's in her political interests to abandon or harm trans people, she will. And they have done this repeatedly. Um, and so I think that needs to be taken into consideration here. People are projecting on the Democrats saying, oh, it's going to be better for us, while ignoring the concrete history of instances where they haven't been better for trans people or for other folks. And then the final point I make here is that, you know, while civil rights are important and valuable, they also kind of presume access to uh, the courts and other political institutions that, that respect these rights. What we actually need is liberation. What we need is to, you know, dismantle entirely the systems of oppression and exploitation that exist in the society and not just carve out these kind of paper rights for some folks. That's important. We should pursue that as much as we can. But what we really have to do is start talking about liberation. And neither party has that on their agenda. Right? Neither party will do that whatsoever. If we want that liberation, we're going to have to fight for it. And that's what's the most important, <laughs> excuse me, to the millions of trans people that are completely shut out of the political system, out of the economic system, that are forced into, uh, you know, terribly desperate scenarios that have been made made worse by both parties. So I think that, I think that, you know, those are the kinds of things that we need to consider. You know, I'm not going to say that I understand their argument. It's well taken, but there are, you know, there's these other considerations, most notably the actual historical experience of the Democratic Party in power that we have to take into consideration. Thanks for being on our show, Andrew. Andrew is an activist, organizer, and writer. Andrew Dobbs is the author of the Medium article, No Voting Democrat is Not Harm Reduction. Follow Andrew on Twitter at AndrewDobbsTX, and you can support Andrew's work at Patreon.com slash Andrew Dobbs. Thanks so much for being on our show this week. Hey, thank you so much for having me. It was great. Take care. Truly revolting radio, this is hell. Now, the Greek debt crisis was devastating that nation's economy. Even a revolutionary government couldn't stop the logic and rationale of accepting structural reform from the Troika of the European Commission, the European Central Bank, and the International Monetary Fund. But what if I told you that the solution to the problem has been worse than the problem itself? In fact, The amount of capital destruction caused by the Troika-imposed austerity is equivalent to that of France and or Italy after the Second World War. We'll find out what's been worse for Greece, the original crisis itself, or the way the crisis has been managed when we talk to social activist Pavlo Rufos, who is the author of A Happy Future is a Thing of the Past, The Greek Crisis, and Other Disasters. This week's question from hell is, what's a catchier name for the Anthropocene? What's a catchier name for the Anthropocene? And if you have to look up Anthropocene, then go ahead. But it's, you know, the era in which we live where human activity is creating climate change and devastating the environment. All replies get read on air during the next hour of this week's This Is Hell. Our favorite response wins a book we're featuring well right about now a happy future is a thing of the past the greek crisis and other disasters by pavlos rufos again the question from hell is what's a catchier name for the anthropocene leave your comments right now at our facebook page facebook.com slash this is hell radio listen during the next hour of this week's show to hear all the responses and to find out if you've won 
You can rate This Is Hell on Facebook, and after 153 respondents so far, we have the highest rating possible, five out of five stars. If you rate This Is Hell, leave a comment about us at our Facebook page, facebook.com slash thisishellradio. We'll read your rating and response on the air. Go to facebook.com slash thisishellradio and give us five stars so I don't have to. Coming up on this week's This Is Hell, the crisis of capitalism continues to face Greece, a new constitution for a new Cuba, capitalism is an environmental killing machine, a moment of truth when Jeff goes bats, and your elected officials think you're more conservative than you are. All that stuff plus a whole bunch of listener feedback. We'll get into rotten history. We'll find out what Alex has been up to on social media. We shared a couple new podcasts exclusively for Patreon subscribers to This Is Hell at patreon.com slash thisishell. I'm going to tell you about those as well as next week's Patreon podcast. Of course, we'll have the question from hell. We also want to thank some listeners for supporting This Is Hell and sharing the show online. Maybe we'll get to twist off knowledge. And as always, what's happening on upcoming episodes of... This is hell. Noam Chomsky called this is hell sanity in talk radio. So clearly and sadly, Noam's gone insane. This is hell. The Greek crisis was devastating to Greece in ways that resembled the capital devastation done by war. The nation eventually acquiesced to structural reforms meant supposedly to address all of Greece's financial problems, including, most importantly, its debt. So how and why have things actually gotten worse under the management of Greece's crisis than it was during the original crisis itself? Here to help us figure out, figure all this out, social activist Pavlos Rufos is author of A Happy Future is a Thing of the Past, The Greek Crisis and Other Disasters. Welcome to This Is How, Pavlos. Hello, Chuck. Pavlos Hi. will be here in Chicago on Monday, November 19th, and he will be speaking at the Seminary Co-op Bookstores at 5751 South Woodlawn, beginning at 6 p.m. You can find Pavlos's entire tour schedule on his Twitter account at PRUFOS, that's P-R-O-U-F-O-S. You write that in May 2017, representatives of the Troika, that's the European Commission, European Central Bank, and the International Monetary Fund, and of the Greek government of Syriza, the independent Greeks, Anil, met to, that's their coalition of the far-right and relatively left organization, uh, the far-right independent Greeks, and the Syriza, the relatively leftward Greeks, Greeks, met to put the final touches uh, to yet another set of austerity measures heralded as necessary structural reforms. This is in May 2017. What were the stated goals of those reforms, and have any of those goals been achieved yet, or are we just impatient? Well, I mean, um, if we go back to 2010, the original purpose of the whole memorandum of agreement, uh, the whole austerity imposed by the Troika, was supposedly to fix the um, terrible uh, economic situation of Greece. And uh, if one looks at that document now in hindsight, I mean, at the moment, people could tell as well, but, you know, you were kind of not allowed to say that. Um, if you looked at the document, the, the idea was that the Greece um, government finances were such terrible shape because of overspending, because of the extreme amount of public employees, that the prime minister at the time declared that he did not have knowledge on how many employees 
and Greece, the Greek state employed, which is a ridiculous uh, claim, of course. And um, everything, everything was going bad uh, at that moment. So it was clearly projected as a Greek problem. Everything um, had to do with the way of um, the, w- the way the government um, dealt with its um, finances. And, of course, it had nothing to do at the time with the global economic crisis that had started two years earlier. It had nothing to do with the banking sector. In fact, in the Memorandum of Agreement, the first document, we read that it was, it was the fiscal um, indiscipline of the Greek government that was responsible for the banking failures. There's a, a tremendous reversal of, of um, perspective. And, and that, was the, that was the initial idea. Everything in the, in the Greek government has been done wrong. It is incompetent. It is ineffective. And the Troika has to come to fix all that. So were, to what extent have they had any success? And because it was only May 2017, are we simply being impatient for them to have the success that, that we want them to have? Right. Um, let's start by this. It, it has been a complete failure by all accounts. Um, not only in terms of the official aims, but in terms of unofficial aims as well. Um, if we start by saying that the, the, the trigger for, the, um, um, for calling in the financial assistance from the European Commission, the European Central Bank and the IMF was the amazing amount of debt. Um, it was a, at the time in 2010, 120% of GDP. The debt at this moment, after eight years of tremendous austerity, is close to 180% of GDP. So pretty clearly something has gone wrong over there. Um, apart from that, um, the austerity has devastated the Greek economy. Um, GDP has contracted by more than 25%, a situation that has not been experienced by a country which is not at war. Um, unemployment uh, remains ex- extremely high. The highest point it reached was around 25%, one in four people, that means. And for young people, 18 to, 20 to 26, it was closer to 65%. Um, the, the, um, the, the health, health sector literally al- almost completely collapsed. There was a, there was a drastic cut of almost 40% of its budget within the first two years. Taxes have gone up. Um, none, none of those measures, none of this, um, this form of austerity did anything to make the Greek economy, uh, to put the Greek economy in a better place, right? Um, there has been no uh, renewal. If, if, if the current account balance, for example, let's take this one example, if the current account balance, uh, the, the, the relationship between imports and exports um, Greece is improved and it's somehow balanced at the moment, that is only because imports have completely collapsed. Export have, exports have not risen in any particular way, in any significant way, but imports have collapsed. So some people could use this number to say that the situation is getting better. It actually shows it's just getting worse and worse the whole time. So you write that an agreement was reached and the reforms were formalized, the Supplemental Memorandum of Understanding, essentially updating reform commitments undertaken in 2015. The measures demanded in exchange for another bailout were not simply unreasonable. The Greek economy is expected in the agreement to run a primary surplus budget of 3.5% of gross domestic product per year until 2020. 
22, a level never achieved by any government, let alone one decimated by a near decade-long recession. What explains why they would have such unreasonable terms? Did Did the Troika... Were they true believers? Did they truly believe that with their structural reforms, Greece would be able to set a record-breaking budget surplus unlike any ever seen before in government history? Well, to be honest, this is a kind of controversial point, and, and my opinion on it is, is, is also maybe controversial. I think the main conclusion that one can draw from this um, history of the last eight years is that they did not care, right? And this is quite difficult um, to, to comprehend, um, it, is, it has been proven again and again by other people, not only me. You had Yanis Varoufakis here; he's made the same point. Um, there was no chance that such a program of austerity would ever work, and it is impossible that they did not know that. So the conclusion is: what what possibly could they have had in mind when enacting such strict um, restructuring of the economy? Um, if, you, if you devastate the public sector by cutting wages by 40%, and the public sector in Greece is so important for the, um, for the economy, for consumption, for loans, for everything, what do you expect? When demand collapses because people do not have access um, to the same, and um, when their wages are cut and benefits are cut, and everyone is trying to um, tighten their budget, so demand collapses what is going to happen to all the businesses. It is impossible to assume that the, the, the people behind this program did not know that. But I think the reason they chose to, to go down that path is unrelated to Greece, in the same way that the crisis management in general in Greece was unrelated to the specific problems of Greece um, that were real, but had um, were, were kind of a side effect in relation to the crisis management organization. I think their main concern in 2010 was to ensure that French and bank and German banks' exposure towards the periphery and Greece um, was protected. That was the aim of the first memorandum. And it's kind of funny to say that, but it is no longer controversial to make that claim. Today, the ex-head of the Eurogroup, um, Dijsselbloem, he came out a few months ago and admitted the same thing, that the first memorandum was only about French and German banks. Thomas Beiser, the head of the Euro, ex-head of the Euro Working Group, admitted something similar recently. So it's kind of funny to say that things that a lot of people um, had been saying from 2010 onwards um, and were considered radical, insane, irresponsible, are now being admitted by the people who were behind this austerity mechanism. But this is, I think this is the main idea. They had to make sure that there was no um, problem with the over-leveraged banks German and French, in particular, uh, banks in the European sector. And then a while later, in 2012, for the second memorandum of agreement, they had to make sure that um, Greece, the possibility of default, would not be contagious to the rest of the Eurozone. And these were the main objectives. From then on, what happened in the Greek economy was not that important, because we shouldn't forget, the Greek economy represented only 2% of the Eurozone GDP. So the one thing I was trying to figure out is, is this due to the idea that they were actually trying to protect the banks as their number one priority? And I don't know if these two things can be separated. Or is this because 
the World Bank or the World Bank, the, the Troika, the IMF, the European Commission, that they, uh, the European Central Bank, that they all apply their remedies to whatever economic problems they have with this kind of cookie cutter approach without looking at the specific uh, problems within that country. Is this because their priority is banks or is this part of the, uh, their whole process, is there a problem within their whole process where they look at things as a, resp- as a knee-jerk response instead of looking at what the specific problems are within each economy? Well, I think you're right. Um, it's, it's a bit of both. So on the one hand, the specific problem at the time for um, uh, the heads of the European establishment was to protect the, the failing banks. So that, that was a specific problem. The rest of it, the, the problems, the, the chronic pathogenies of the Greek economy, the a level of incompetence, a level of corruption, all these things, although true, were never of particular interest um, to the Europeans or the IMF. Now, from then on, as soon as um, the, 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 the agreement was made for the financial assistance to proceed in Greece with all the conditionalities, I think what they did is they took the opportunity and I will explain what kind of opportunity that is, Um, they took the opportunity to impose a number of austerity measures and restructuring that had nothing to do with the crisis itself, but were um, very much consistent with the overall plan and, and, um, let's say, structure of the Eurozone from the very beginning, in the early 90s, when it was um, signed in with the Maastricht Treaty. So the main coordinates of what the Eurozone was meant to be um, corresponding to a kind of uh, what, what people would call an order-liberal or neoliberal um, understanding of modern, modern government and, and economics, um, had never been particularly successful throughout the whole period before the crisis. So I think what they did is they took the opportunity now to impose a set of measures that they always wanted and I have to add here, the Greek elites also wanted a similar kind of situation. It was in, in collaboration that they did that. And um, they took the opportunity of the crisis, the, the exit of Greek from the market, of Greece from the market, and the imposition of, of, um, of, of this bailout mechanism in order to achieve things that had not been achieved in the past. But they were, in, in many ways, they were, in all possible ways, they were unrelated to the crisis itself. You write that the debt remains unsustainable. What is meant by the debt being unsustainable? What, what could happen? What, when, it, when it can no longer be sustained, what can happen? What will happen to that debt? Well, according to the um, official um, estimates, which I should add have been disastrously wrong every time they project something in the future, but let's assume that for this time they're right. The debt in Greece, the way it is now, with the, with the repayment scheme that has been devised, it will be repaid in 2058, right? And that, that, that is what unsustainable means, right? It is literally, um, it is impossible. What, what everyone more or less knows is that Greece cannot repay this debt. Um, it is not possible with the way that the economy is going in Greece, with the recession continuing and everything, it is not possible to repay this debt. The only way that this can work is by promising, as the latest government of Syriza has done, 
to maintain what you mentioned before, a surplus budget of 3.5. Like a constant internal devaluation and internal austerity that cuts all the time from public services, from welfare, from health, from pensions, from wages, whatever it can, in order to service um, those debt payments. While at the same time, everyone knows that the, the debt itself is not sustainable. The IMF um, is, is, was, was literally close to abandoning the whole memorandum agreements and the whole Troika mechanism precisely because it is in its statute that it cannot provide financial assistance to countries that have unsustainable debt. And it was pretty clear from various reports that came out from the IMF that the Greek debt was unsustainable. But by, by devising this, 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 I, this um, new way of, of looking at it and, and, and pretending that a 3.5 surplus budget is possible for, for a long time, um, it's, it's until 2022, and that's what they've agreed so far, they're pretending, everyone's pretending, that the, date, the debt is still sustainable. And that gives them the opportunity to use it as a mechanism, as a leverage, in order to impose and continue with austerity. But I think it, it would be hard to find anyone who is seriously looking at Greece um, and looking at the data to actually claim that this debt of 180% of GDP is, is, is sustainable. I mean, in, in 2010, it was 120 and that created, that generated the whole mechanism. It is, it is close to insane to argue that at 180, it actually, you know, suddenly becomes sustainable. So how much success has austerity had historically before being applied to Greece? Uh, how, much had, how much success has austerity had ex- historically as applied by the Troika or even the IMF? Can the IMF point to some great success that proves, yes, austerity in the long run will work at stabilizing what were otherwise unstable economies? Because I can't imagine that the Troika sold this idea to the Sarit's uh, independent Greeks part, or, uh, government without having some evidence that they have had success with austerity? Well, I mean, it would be interesting to look to, to answer that. We, we, could, we can have a look at the fact that after the um, 1997 uh, Asian crisis and after the 2001 revolt in Argentina, which was uh, accompanied by a default, to the IMF, the IMF as an institution more or less uh, disappeared for a whole decade. If one looks at the data at which countries uh, requested IMF support throughout the 2000s, there are only two countries in that list, and they are both um, countries that have very close ties with the American um, establishment. It was Turkey and Pakistan, the only two countries that asked for financial assistance. So in many ways, the IMF was more or less discredited by, by, its, um, by its own programs and then the kind of restructuring that they had imposed in other countries, precisely because they were complete failures. So the IMF re- was reintroduced as a global, um, and let's say, yeah, mechanism of stability with the 2010 uh, so-called sovereign debt crisis in the Eurozone. So I don't think there is, there is any chance for anyone to come up with data to show that austerity did actually work at some point. Um, I don't know if, if, if that is exactly what you meant, but there is this argument in Europe, for example, that the reason why Germany is doing so well as an economy has to do with the internal austerity that they imposed in 2003, 2004, with the so-called Agenda 2010, 
And this is an argument that was used um, in the case of Greece as well, in terms of saying, well, if Germany imposed austerity and, um, they were, and their economy is doing so well, Greece should do the same. What a lot of people are forgetting when mentioning that is that, in fact, what helped Germany rebounds um, to growth from 2003-2004 onwards was a massive increase in their exports towards China. There was a, there was a general dynamism in exports at that time, um, mostly fueled from China, and that is something that greatly benefited Germany. And the, the export sector in Germany was one sector that did not go through this austerity process that is being described. The austerity process in Germany in the 2003 and 2004 um, was mostly about low-wage um, service sector jobs and, and welfare benefit cuts. It had nothing to do with the export industry. So the one sector which actually supported the, the, the return to growth for Germany was not the one that was um, under austerity. But still, this is the argument that we hear quite a lot today. So then, I mean, because this, it seems kind of oversimplistic just to try to apply one uh, government's, one country's economic uh, success to another. What does simply applying German economic success to Greece, what is that, and not recognizing the differences within their economy, what does that reveal to you about the way that decision-making is done amongst the Troika? Well, I think there is a, there is a general agreement amongst um, the, the, the overall establishment in, in Europe and beyond, obviously, but speaking specifically about Europe, there is an agreement, uh, which, is, which is still alive, that this kind of neoliberal, in inverted commas, um, form of, um, of managing the economy, which basically translates to reduce um, public expenditure, reduce the costs of, um, of um, labor, uh, introduce precarious work, part-time contracts, and all that, while at the same time doing privatizations and uh, commodifying a lot of like service sectors like health and etc. There is this general ideology that this is the not only the best but the only way forward, and anything else is doomed to fail. And so everyone in in, in that belongs to this established. Um, um, powers in, in, in Europe agrees with that, despite the data, right? Um, and that would mean not only Germany and, and, and the others, but the, even in Greece. The, the, the successive governments of Greece that we've had in the past, before the crisis, but even after the crisis, have all more or less um, concluded that this is the only way forward. I, I fail to see why. Um, in, in a certain way, because it's pretty obvious that it's not working, even for them, one could say. But uh, that is still the, the, the belief that they hold. So you write that despite official statements more or less identical to each other since 2010, hardly anyone even pretends anymore that the reforms undertaken will restore growth or economic viability in Greece. If the memo of understanding uh, signed so far targeted four main areas of economic activity, debt sustainability, the modernization of the state mechanism, growth competitive, competitiveness through reduced labor costs and bank stability. They have only succeeded in keeping the insolvent Greek, Greek banks afloat and radically lowering labor costs. Do you believe the real intended goal of the structural reforms the Troika imposed upon Greece 
were to secure banks and cut wages, not to address the needs of the people who were suffering from the economic crisis. Yeah, I think there is there is no denying that. Um, as I said before, the, the the situation in Europe, in general, in Europe after the 2000 2008 crisis that started from the U.S., uh, but affected immediately affected um, all the big corporations and banks because of the interconnectedness of the global economy today. Um, that um, that had put so much pressure in the banking system of the whole Europe. And that it was imperative to do things to protect it. Greece was one example where, um, yeah, the German and French banks were particularly heavily exposed, but not the only one, right? Spain, Portugal, Ireland, they were um, heavily exposed there too. And not coincidentally, um, we had similar programs of austerity and um, all the conditionalities that went with um, slightly um, after Greece a bit later on in all those countries. So there was no denying that this, this was the beginning. Um, this was the, the, the primary aim. And as I said before, on a secondary level, they were particularly interested in, in doing whatever they could to, um, to use this um, um, opportunity, as I said, to further reduce labor costs and impose and, and change working conditions in such a way that would, would be more favorable to their understanding of how the economy um, should be run. So lower labor costs, precarious uh, work, part-time, um, abolish collective bargaining, um, free up the, the, the legislation that protected layoffs in, in, in the sense of like how many layoffs could a company be allowed to make according to the law. So they had all these changes that were, um, yeah, as, as I said before, it, 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 was, it was a separate uh, kind of level of, um, of of dealing with the economy than than what was the actual problem at the time, which remained the banking sector throughout the whole of Europe. So it didn't. Re- they weren't really as concerned about uh, helping out the people of Greece as they were about securing banks, as they were about cutting wages. Why did they think that that was going to create a huge boom in the economy when it would seem from just, I mean, I'm, not, I'm no economist, it would just seem from the words on the page that that would be devastating to the economy. Why would they think that that would be something that was good for the economy? Well, on the one hand, I would say... One way to explain that would be ideological blindness. Um, so I think it's, it's possible when hearing some of those technocrats, it is possible that they actually think that um, yet yeah, drastically reducing labor costs could actually bring an economy um, back to growth. I think that some of them might actually believe that. On the second hand, what, what is also, I think, relevant in the discussion is they were not, as I said before, they were not that concerned about whether Greek, the Greek economy will be able to regain growth. Um, what they had realized after, let's say, approximately seven or eight years of, of Eurozone, the so-called golden years of the Eurozone, what they had realized is, was that they had created a system that was so structurally imbalanced, and which meant that a lot of countries in the periphery could take advantage of the extremely low borrowing costs that existed within the whole Eurozone and proceed with a kind of credit expansion um, that we saw at the same time all over the world in, in that area. But um, 
especially in the Eurozone, there was a tremendous credit expansion that created a lot of growth, especially for the countries in the periphery. During the, the, in the period between 2002 and 2006, Greece was growing at an annual rate of 4.3%, which is incredible. And we had similar rates for other countries in the, in the periphery of the Eurozone. But all of that growth was based on low borrowing costs, the low interest rates that the, the Eurozone had created. And what the, the, the people at the top realized at some point is that the, to the extent that these countries could remain within this regime of low borrowing costs, um, they could basically roll over and finance the debt indefinitely. Right? And then at some point, the, 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 the credit expansion was over, credit was frozen, the interbank lending um, facilities were, were frozen as well. So the, the, the credit that fueled all this growth in inverted commas uh, was no longer there. Um, and they realized that they could use that opportunity to actually proceed with certain restructuring that um, they couldn't have, they couldn't have um, achieved in the previous times. You write that if there was ever any plan to revitalize the Greek economy, that would only occur through massive capital consolidation and the reduction of labor costs to the extent of making the economy competitive vis-a-vis the neighboring Balkan states, not vis-a-vis the rest of the Eurozone. What do you mean by massive capital consolidation? Because what I hear is massive inequality and reinforcing and protecting of the elite. Is that what you mean by capital consolidation? Um, no, what I, what I mean in, in, uh, with, with the use of this term is this. Um, Greek is a, Greece is a country that is characterized by very low capital concentration, which basically means, to put it in simple terms, it means that uh, more than 90% of businesses in Greece employ less than 12 people. So we had like very small and medium-sized um, businesses being the backbone of the Greek economy, the, the, the majority of the firms. And that was not only um, um, causing problems in terms of like increased profitability, it was also used as, it, it, was, it was a kind of a burden or an obstacle um, towards making grander um, infrastructural um, investments and, and whatnot. So capital consolidation in this case would mean that larger firms could take advantage of the um, increase increased, reduced um, demand, the collapse of, of, of part of these businesses in order to buy them and, and put them under their control. So that in the business sector, it would work a bit like that. In the banking sector, for example, you have loads of different banks, um, each one competing with their with a, with a, um, yeah, rivals. And what you had in the end was that a lot of these banks um, would fail and then smaller, not smaller, like larger and more um, structurally um, significant banks would take over uh, the clientels and, and everything in order to um, yeah, further consolidate their position. So that is basically what I mean. I think that it was part of the plan of the restructuring to kind of ensure that there is some kind of consolidation in terms of like who controls um, the business sector, what sort of control there is of the banking sector, and, and, um, and so on and so forth. That was the, the, the main idea. 
You write that, unfortunately, translating the real impact of these dramatic figures on people's lives, the dramatic figures that show how the economy in uh, Greece continues to get worse under crisis management. Again, these are figures that show Greece has witnessed, uh, finance, witnessed capital destruction equivalent to that of France or Italy after the Second World War. Telling those stories about those dramatic figures on people's lives has proven elusive. Why has translating that capital destruction into its impact on people's lives proved elusive? Why is it so difficult to explain how bad austerity has been on the daily lives of the people of Greece? Mm. Well, I mean, one of the main reasons is something that I'm I'm also kind of guilty of in in this whole um, conversation that we've had here. We we, we throw out a lot of numbers. Like we say 40% of GDP um, 25% 25% of GDP went down, 40% of wages went down. You throw these numbers, they might, they might sound um, like tragic, but it doesn't, it doesn't immediately um, confer what, what the problem is about. And it doesn't immediately translate into people thinking, okay, how exactly did people in Greece experience that? What, was the, what were the transformations that happened in their daily lives and in their, their forms of, of, of existence? Um, how do you translate those things? Because, it, as I said, it's, when we throw numbers around, you might, if, you, if you're an economist, if you're pretty much used to those things, you might have a clearer idea of what exactly, how that thing could translate, even though that might actually not be the case. A lot of economists just look at numbers as numbers and nothing else. Um, but in many cases, yes, that, that is one of the problems. Um, just throwing around the numbers doesn't, doesn't really convey um, the, the actual impact. And, and that has been kind of um, difficult for people outside of Greece to understand and relate in terms of an everyday um, kind of transformation of their lives, which has been radic- radical and in, in a negative sense. And you tell the story of one of the people's personal lives, 37-year-old Marina, and how since the crisis of 2010, Marina's world has been shattered. In these last seven years, she has lost more than 40% of her income, while her parents have seen their income reduced by 50% as demand has collapsed. Owning property has become a veritable curse as the property tax has increased more than eightfold since 2011. Although real estate prices have fallen by more than 50%, it remains extremely difficult to sell one's property at a reasonable price. Incomes are falling dramatically. Real estate value is plummeting. Taxes are going up. You write that in 2017, reflecting the near collapse of the Greek healthcare system, Rena's father died from a cancer that could have been treated had it been detected in time. The public hospitals he attended no longer had the equipment for such tests. So public services are deteriorating while taxes are going up and wages are dropping with high taxes, low wages, poor service, and no hope in sight until, supposedly... 2059. How vulnerable is the Greek government to collapse? Well, it was a good question. Um, from 2010 onwards, all the governments that um, were elected or appointed to implement these austerity measures collapsed after two years. And no government managed to sustain itself more than that because, precisely because the cost, as has been described, was uh, tremendous. Um, so despite the fact that there were other forms of resistance and social movements, even at the electoral level, people tried to, to reflect this disappointment and express it, and um, governments collapsed. This has not been the case with the latest government. Syriza has been in power for two years, and it doesn't seem to be in the process of collapse at this moment at all. Um, to be honest, 
it's still speculative. There's still another year uh, or so before the uh, the next election. If I'm right, it's 2019. Yes, um, but as I, as I said, it's speculative, and I don't want to like, put my my hand the fire on that. But like, um, I wouldn't be surprised if 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 Syriza got reelected. To be honest, um, and the main reason for that. Um, has to do with the complete inability of the opposition, uh, the, the, the party of new democracy, the right-wing new democracy, their inability to take advantage of the fact that um, Greece is imposing an austerity which is, has been accelerated in relation to the previous governments, uh, but they cannot take advantage of that because they have presented themselves as the party of austerity, as the party that is a natural ally of the European technocrats, and that kind of description and image they have of themselves uh, goes against um, the reality as it is now, because the European technocrats in the IMF are absolutely ecstatic with Syriza. If one reads the, the, the reports of those technocrats of the last um, eight years, it is only with the government of Syriza that you had a, a properly enthusiastic description of the implementation of austerity. In fact, in, in one of the latest reports, they say that Syriza is not only implementing the measures that were agreed upon, but it's gone beyond and has started implementing things that were not part of the, of the um, agreement. So faced with that reality, new democracy is kind of, um, it, it's put in a corner, right? Because what exactly could they claim um, to do better than Syriza when Syriza has such enthusiastic support from Europe and the IMF? They could not actually. The, the best thing they can promise is that they can do austerity even better. And that is not something that's going to go well um, with the electorate in Greece, clearly. So how successful then has Syriza been in co-opting both any alternative from the left or from the right by forming a coalition government with the independent Greeks, with the ANEL. Have they successfully muted both uh, alternatives from both the right and the left? Have they undermined both the far right, the golden dawn types that people are afraid of, as well as the far left, the people who created an infrastructure outside of the government after uh, the Greek crisis hit? Well, one one needs to remember something very important about Syriza. Um, Syriza was elected in 2015. The social movements that tried to, to put a stop to austerity were basically um, in the period of 2010 and 2012. After February, March of 2012, there were no, there have been no grand, um, big grassroots mobilizations in the streets. Um, that has just simply not been the case. People were exhausted. There was a sense of defeat. There was a sense of depression. And then all these mobilizations that had like, uh, taken people to the streets in the past um, were, were gone. So it took another three years of such a feeling of disillusionment and defeat for the government of Syria to be elected. So their, their relationship to uh, the movement is very small, contrary to what a lot of people are saying. Um, Syria participated in, the, in, in those social mobilizations as much as anyone else. It did not have the influence that, that people think it did. It was a very tiny faction um, within that generalized social movement. But what it did take advantage of after three years was precisely this, this sense of hopelessness and defeat 
and the idea that, okay, we have tried everything in terms of like social movements, in terms of resistance, in terms of everyday activities, there is still no, um, um, the, the Troika is, is, is clearly not moving one inch back. So the last hope or the, the last maybe possibility to do something might be to elect, elect a government that promises to end austerity. Um, that is what Syriza took advantage of. Um, clearly, after, after a while, um, people realized that that was not, not going to be the case. Six months later, Syriza capitulated in the most obvious way. But I think what, what keeps Syriza in the position they are now is precisely the, the continuation of this feeling of defeat that you have in Greece. It's quite unfortunate and sad to, to admit as such, but um, I think this is what retains Greek, um, retains the, the, the position of Syriza uh, at the moment. It is not some kind of tremendous ability to co-opt um, radical mobilizations. It, it is actually the absence of these mobilizations that keeps Syriza um, staying. Uh, as you were saying earlier about the personal stories of, for instance, 37-year-old Marina, due to the cuts in her wages and her parents' income, she was unable to keep up with her home loan repayment. She has lost the house, but not her debt. You've already explained that public debt, what austerity was supposed to fix, has actually increased under Troika-imposed austerity. Has personal debt as well? Is debt a growing problem not only collectively in Greece, but individually? Well, um, actually, no. Household debt had, uh, was increasing throughout the whole decade from 2002 onwards related to the credit expansion that I was explaining before. But from 2010 and, and, that, and, and, and after, it is, it, it, is, it is almost impossible to get a loan from the bank. So becoming personally indebted is just no longer an option. Because banks are, are not in a position to give out debt, uh, to give out loans, at least not with any any uh, sustainable interest rates. Um, so there hasn't been an actual increase in household debt, but there is it, it has remained stable in the sense that people are, are trying to um, to make ends meet and and pay um, those amounts that are being owed, which they are mostly unable to do at the moment because of the cuts in wages and all that. Um, it's quite significant to note that the, the percentage of non-NPL, the, the, the non-payable um, loans of the banking sector of Greece is 45%. So that basically means 45% of the loans that the, that the banking sector gave out um, in the previous years are, are not being paid back by the people who, who received them because they are simply unable to do so. And this is one of the reasons why um, uh, you have had in the last year introduced by the government of Syriza for the first time, um, no other government tried to do that before, and they had introduced the, the, the measures of appropriating houses for those people who cannot repay their loans. So um, people who cannot pay back their loans are having their houses confiscated. And, and this is a measure that was tremendously unpopular that is why there was specific legislation from 2010 onwards to avoid exactly that. Because one shouldn't forget that in Greece, the level of home ownership is extremely high. It was 85%. So that means a lot, a lot of people own their own houses as the 
in many cases, the only type of asset that they have, um, the only type of wealth. So it was very politically sensitive and socially um, sensitive issue and one that every other government avoided in the past. But um, for the first time, from 2016 onwards, the Syriza government decided to go ahead and, um, and, and appropriate those houses from the people who could not pay their loans. And this is one of the examples where the Troika was enthusiastic about a government that goes far beyond the agreed measures and introduces new measures of austerity. So I would be remiss in not asking you about the kind of conventional wisdom, the myths that we have, especially here in the Western media, northern media, uh, about uh, what happened in Greece that led to this uh, crisis in capitalism. So what roles did corruption and a lack of modernization play in the downfall of the Greek economy? And how are the origins of the Greek crisis outside of Greece? Well, it's um, you had both, of course, tremendous problems in the Greek economy, its organization, the organization of the state, um, a very rampant system of clientelism. I would be the last one to deny that there were problems. I have absolutely no reason to pretend that the system in Greece or the situation in Greece was for some reason um, beneficial uh, to people or that it was so good that one should return to it. At the same time, what I have tried to argue in the book is that despite these problems, despite corruption, despite a, a, a largely inefficient um, public sector, in whatever that means, um, for a lot of people in Greece, it just meant that their everyday dealings with the state were just um, a constant um, um, source of annoyance. Uh, but despite all these problems, what happened in Greece from 2010 onwards um, had nothing to do with those issues. So the idea that was propagated by a lot of people at the time, and in, in, some, in some cases still is, the idea that the, the restructuring of the economy in Greece would solve all these problems that everyone, or a lot of people at least, had a reason to, to be angry about, um, is it, just proven to be ridiculous. So my point is, there is no denying that there were very serious problems before, but what the crisis did was not address those problems, because that was never the interest of the people who, um, who, who the, the architects behind the, the crisis management mechanism. Uh, whether people were having a, having a difficult time um, moving around the state sector and, and, and dealing with, with everyday activities and, uh, and the lack of economic um, growth outside credit and all that, that, these things might well be true. And it, it's kind of interesting for people to discuss um, what that meant for people living in Greece at the time. But I think we have to be very careful in, in keeping it strict strictly disconnected from what the crisis management um, mechanism put in place. You write how Syriza saw the restructuring process as a hiccup. To you, was and is the Greek crisis just a hiccup? And what do the what does Syriza miss when they view this, and other supporters of theirs, when they view this as just a hiccup? Well, part of the... Um, the, the, the world view or, um, that, that Syriza was projecting in, in 2014, just before the elections, the kind of idea they had when they were promoting that 
what exactly would um, you know, an end of austerity look like in Greece, right? Because they were promising exactly that. They were going to tear down, tear up the, the, the memorandum agreements and, and end austerity. So, but when, when one looks closely at what they meant by that, their, their, their portrayal of Greece and the economy after austerity was more or less identical to um, the, the image that Greeks had about Greece before the crisis. So you had a situation where there was, um, Syriza was promising that the, the, the banking sector would be made healthy again, so um, loans could be given out. There would be a state mechanism that would protect citizens from the, from the abstract uh, forces and pressures of the global economy. Um, there will be jobs, there will be um, an increase in, in, um, yeah, in growth in, in, in all those numbers. All of that corresponded to a very specific time in Greece, um, and that was the, the so-called golden years. And that's what I mean when I say that they, they, they thought it was a hiccup. So for them, the idea of like finishing with austerity was basically returning to, to the way Greece was just before the crisis. But the problem and what they did not understand or what they did not, um, what, what they were not interested in understanding is that the material conditions that created that type of economic growth were no longer there. So the credit expansion that had fueled this growth, as I said before, um, was simply not um, present. There was no possibility to go back to that situation without um, um, having this kind of massive um, expansion of like banking, over-leveraging um, and giving out loans with, with, with the regime of like low interest rates that existed at the time in the Eurozone. So the only way to replicate that situation would be to turn back time. Um, and that is simply not an option. Is austerity not just within Greece, not within just the Eurozone, is austerity an internationalized class war? For sure, yes. Um, in whatever way one looks at it, it is pretty obvious that the, the, the victims of austerity, of restructuring, and the people who suffer the most and immediately and without any hesitation are the poor, the people, the, the wage laborers, the workers, the ones who are forced to forced to survive in this world through um, working for someone else, the ones who are um, in this position. These are the people that are um, directly losing from this situation. Um, at the same time, of course, it is not, it shouldn't be considered straightforward that the, the opposite side, let's say, the bourgeoisie, the, the people at the top, are automatically winning from austerity. And this is one of the contradictions that I think are interesting and are going to play it out um, in the future as well. Um, what the crisis management did for capital was to, to, to consolidate or to, let's say, stabilize the situation. But today, stability in the economy has come to mean only the fact that there is no collapse. That is the only meaning of stability today. It does not mean increased growth. It does not mean increased profitability. Profit rates are not going up in any way whatsoever. So um, the austerity mechanism was good from their own perspective in order to, to crush any kind of um, working class 
mobilization against um, what was happening, but it did not. It was not something that automatically translated into higher profitability, uh, better returns for capital. And this is this is a contradiction that continues today. And this is one of the reasons we see all these different uh, attempts and experimental ways of, of, of approaching the economy, like you have here, for example, with Trump and protectionism and this idea that, you know, there might be a new way of looking at trade that might help. You have um, similar examples of illiberal democracies in, in Eastern Europe with Orban and, and um, in Poland. You have all these different ways. And I think all, all these things are corresponding to the fact that the crisis management maybe managed to stabilize the situation from, from, from going towards a complete collapse but it did not um, um, rejuvenate the economy on capitalist terms in a way that they, they would have liked. And, and this contradiction remains and, and determines the situation today, I would say. I've got one last question for you, Pavlos. We have been speaking with social activist Pavlos Rufos, author of A Happy Future is a Thing of the Past, The Greek Crisis and Other Disasters. He's going to be here in Chicago on Monday, November 19th, when he'll be speaking at the Seminary Co-op Bookstores at 5751 South Woodlawn in Hyde Park, beginning at 6 p.m. You can find all of Pavlos's tour schedule at his Twitter account, at P. Rufos, that's R-O-U-F-O-S. One last question for you, Pavlos, and as we do with all of our guests, it's the question from hell, the question we hate to ask, you might hate to answer, or our audience is going to hate your response. So what's been worse for Greece, their economic crisis or that crisis's management? Um, well, I would say... I would say it's, it's the crisis management because the economic crisis itself, the impact, um, could not be separated. I mean, the crisis management was precisely what, what um, came at the same time as the um, economic crisis. The, the, the actual effects and consequences of the global economic crisis in Greece were present in terms of like the debt increase, in terms of the deficit and all that. But the moment those things were recognized, the moment that the, the financial problems of Greece were brought to the light and, and in many cases exaggerated, I would say. Um, but the moment that happened, the crisis mechanism, the crisis management mechanism was immediately put in place a few, um, a couple of weeks later, in, more or less. So there wasn't, there wasn't, any, there wasn't even any time to, to, to consider what the, the consequences of the crisis could have been, because immediately um, you had the crisis management. So what we have experienced in Greece since 2010 is this relentless mechanism of austerity and restructuring and, 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 and a constant deterioration of conditions. Um, we haven't had an experience of what the economic crisis would have been without this management, whatever that means. Yeah. Yeah. The Troika supplying uh, problems to solutions and solutions, the horribly failed solutions to problems that only make problems worse, doing that since apparently 1948. I really appreciate it, Pavlos. Thank you so much for being on our show this week. Again, that social activist Pavlos Rufos, author of A Happy Future is a Thing of the Past, The Greek Crisis and Other Disasters. Thank you so much for being on our show. And you can see Pavlos here in Chicago on Monday, November 19th, when he'll be speaking at the Seminary Co-op Bookstores, 5751 South Woodlawn, beginning at 6 p.m. in Hyde Park. Thank you so much for being on our show this week.
Thank you very much for inviting me. Thank you. Live from the nightmare of want, this is how Cuba is redefining itself. It is becoming anew as the socialist island nation moves toward a new constitution within today's economically and culturally globalized world. So what happens to the march toward communism in Cuba? We'll find out when we talk to International Education Director of the Mexico Solidarity Network, Dr. Thomas Hansen, who posted an article at the website of the Autonomous University of Social Movements headlined, Challenges for Cuba's New Constitution. It's time for nasty, gnarly, gnar, nasty, gnarly, nauseous, naughty, nerdy, icky, drippy, sticky, goopy, gloppy, globby, gory, rotten history in 1940, 78 years ago. An earthquake in the Vrancia region of eastern Romania wreaked havoc from the capital city of Bucharest well into neighboring Moldavia, now known as Moldova, although for some reason I'm betting... Moldavia was always known as Moldova to locals, really thinking the British Empire threw an eye in there because the British Empire, much like the British today, like to throw their eyes on everything. In Bucharest, some 185 buildings were destroyed in the earthquake, including a 14-story reinforced concrete building. That was the city's tallest building. From across the country came reports of fire, landslides, burst pipelines, leveled neighborhoods, and collapsed factories. The death toll was placed at almost 600, with another 1,271 people injured in Romania's worst earthquake of the 20th century. Unbelievably, Things were actually worse for Romania as the country was being torn apart by the Soviets and the Nazis as fighting raged on throughout the earthquake and beyond. So next time someone asks you, is there anything worse than Nazis? Tell them, Nazis during an earthquake. In Rotten History, 1944, 74 years ago, at Port Seadler in the Admiralty Islands of Papua New Guinea, I'm sure there's nothing imperial or colonial about the name Admiralty Islands. The U.S. Navy cargo ship Mount Hood, intriguing name, Mount Hood exploded without warning with almost 4,000 tons of explosives and ammunition aboard. The ship had been delivering munitions to Navy vessels in the South Pacific theater of World War II. Ah, the theater. Well, eyewitnesses reported a sudden blast and mushroom cloud, followed by chunks of mud, metal debris, and body parts raining from the sky, which is far worse than when it's raining men. The explosion completely destroyed the Mount Hood, again, intriguing name, and killed all 350 of its crew members, of whom no physical remains were ever positively identified. It also damaged some 22 smaller craft nearby in the harbor, many of whose crew members were also killed. Years later, the blast would be assessed as equivalent to that of a small tactical nuclear weapon. The explosion was so powerful that it blew a hole in the ocean floor directly below the ship, measuring 100 yards long, 50 feet wide, and 40 feet deep. Altogether, at least 432 people died with 371 wounded, a naval inquiry later attributed the accident to poor handling of ammunition. Yeah, you can chalk this up to poor handling of admission, all ammunition all you want. But I'm going to say this was caused by war. That was probably driven by capitalism. So yeah, the Mount Hood blew a hole in the ocean floor 
because of capitalism. Uh, but that's just me. In Rotten History, 1975, 43 years ago, the iron ore freighter SS Edmund Fitzgerald, largest ship on the Great Lakes, ran into violent weather on Lake Superior, some 17 miles north of Whitefish Point in Michigan's Upper Peninsula. The ship was buffeted by 100-mile-an-hour winds with waves of up to 35 feet high. And if you have ever been buffeted, you know how painful it can be. Its captain, Captain Ernest McSorley, was on his last voyage before retirement. Side note, the story of the Edmund Fitzgerald is the basis of the movie Lethal Weapon, with Danny Glover's character based on Captain Ernest McSorley, who coined the term, I'm too old for this stuff. Just after 7 p.m., Captain McSorley radioed to another freighter nearby, the SS Arthur M. Anderson, which was busy cooking the books for Enron in the ship's boiler room. McSorley radioed that although his ship was taking on water, he and the crew were holding their own in the storm. And if I was in a storm like that, I'd hold my own too. You're certainly not going to find me holding somebody else's, although who knows, possibly with your last few moments alive, sure. I'd hold somebody else's, just so I could say I did. McSorley's was the last communication from the Edmund Fitzgerald. Without even sending out a distress signal, the ship went to the bottom of Lake Superior with all 29 crew members aboard. A search party found only two empty lifeboats and some scattered debris floating on the water. Experts from the U.S. Coast Guard and the National Transportation Safety Board later blamed the disaster on faulty cargo hatches that allowed water to enter the ship's hold. The Edmund Fitzgerald now lies in two giant pieces, 535 feet deep in Canadian waters. After a series of incidents in which divers visited the shipwreck and even photographed the remains of dead crew members, the Canadian government prohibited public access to the underwater site. That's awful Canadian of them. If the Edmund Fitzgerald was in U.S. waters, they probably would have already built a great America on top of it, complete with a water slide and a subway, because American capitalism wants to make certain you get a crappy sandwich anywhere. That's rotten history, and this is hell. Let me get to this real quick. And this week's question from hell is, what's a catchier name for the Anthropocene? What's a catchier name for the Anthropocene? All replies read on air during, after our next guest uh, this week's, on this week's This Is Hell. Our favorite one's a book we just discussed on this week's show, A Happy Future is a Thing of the Past, The Greek Crisis and Other Disasters by Pavlos Rufos. Again, the question from hell is, what's a catchier name for the Anthropocene? Leave your response now at our Facebook page, facebook.com slash thisishellradio. Listen following our next Next guest to hear all the responses and to find out if you've won. Coming up on this week's This Is Hell, a new constitution for a new Cuba. Capitalism is an environmental killing machine. A moment of truth when Jeff goes bats and your elected officials think you're more conservative than you really are. All that stuff plus we'll find out what Alex has been up to on social media. Uh, we'll get into some listener feedback. We'll share. We want to thank those who uh, shared our show and supported it online this week. We'll talk to you about a couple of the podcasts that we posted on Patreon this week, as well as the question from hell, of course. Maybe we'll get to twist off knowledge, and we'll tell you what's happening on upcoming episodes of This Is Hell. Live from the rotting corpse that is broadca- broadcast radio, This Is Hell. There soon will be a new constitution for Cuba, which to some extent means a new Cuba 
whose socialist state hopes to continue within and besides an economically globalized world. Here to explain to us what's going on in Cuba and why, International Education Director of the Mexico Solidarity Network, Dr. Thomas Hansen, posted an article at the website of the Autonomous University of Social Movements headlined, Challenges for Cuba's New Constitution. Welcome to This Is Hell, Tom. Thanks. And I got to tell you, uh, welcome back to This Is Hell. This is Tom's second appearance on This Is Hell, and Tom is setting a record for the longest time between appearances on our show because the last time Tom was on our show was August 21st, 1999. 19 years ago. I was going to wait till the 20th anniversary, Tom, <laughs> but I just could not wait. Yeah, that was around the time that I was uh, expelled from Mexico for doing human rights work. Right. That was exactly why you were on the show. And we're going to be sharing that interview, actually, on our Patreon podcast in the near future. So people should check that out. Now, you write, Cuba is writing a new constitution, part of a lengthy process of political change that can be traced to the 6th Congress of the Communist Party in 2011. The late Fidel Castro, who passed away in November 2016, was prime minister of Cuba up until 1976, was president up until 2008. Fidel was also the first secretary of the Communist Party up until 2011. Is the rewriting of the Cuban constitution the outcome of Fidel stepping down from power? And if so, does this signal that Cuba is making significant changes to their government and economy away from communism and socialism and toward capitalism and representative democracy? Because I bet that that's what everybody in the U.S. government and media is hoping for. Yeah, I think it has very little to do with uh, the ultimate death of Fidel, um, who, by the way, was a, a brilliant person, uh, probably the the smartest person I've ever met. Um, he, he had a, a vision of the world that was incredible in its detail, in its, in its scope. Um, quite an amazing man, a, a real loss for Cuba. But I think the rewriting of the Constitution and the economic changes in recent years has a lot more to do with the, the material foundations of the economy in Cuba than with the, the demise of Fidel. Um, Cuba finds itself kind of between a, a rock and a hard place. Um, it's suffering under the, the U.S. embargo, which, if it was just an embargo by the United States against Cuba, would, would be bad enough. But the problem is that the United States internationalizes the embargo. In other words, uh, a company like a French company or a Spanish company or many other uh, foreign companies are given a choice. Either you do business with the United States or you do business with Cuba. But the United States won't allow them to do business with both. And so most companies choose the United States, obviously. Um, so the, the internationalization of the embargo is what really hurts Cuba. Um, and they find themselves in a in a kind of a difficult situation right now, um, the, with the demise of the, the, the former Soviet Union in um, 1989-1990, um, and the end of the trade pact that that uh, Cuba had with uh, the uh, Eastern Bloc countries, uh, Cuba went into a recession. It tried to come out of that recession by instituting a, a series of policies led by um, the institution of uh, of a number of, uh, or the building of a number of new hotels and infrastructure for international tourism. Um, and this caused its own set of problems. This caused uh, a kind of a bifurcation of the, the Cuban economy. Uh, many of the people who work in the tourist sector are paid in dollars rather than in Cuban pesos. 
And people who work in the tourist sector often in one or two days can earn what someone who is paid in the Cuban peso sector earns in a month. And so this is this is hurt in in one sense one of the foundations of the Cuban socialist revolution, which was um, equity, equity among the population. So they find themselves in a difficult situation, but they really didn't have any alternative in nineteen in nineteen eighty and nineteen ninety, but to move toward tourism. Cuba is not a a country that has a a wealth of natural resources. It's under constant attack by the United States. Um, and it's it was left between a rock and a hard place, really. Uh, you touched on a few things there I want to ask you about. One is uh, the embargo that's continuing. What do people who are supporters of Barack Obama and the Obama administration, what do they miss in understanding U.S.-Cuban relations when we, you know, see in the news that Barack Obama, or we saw in the news that Barack Obama had, uh, you know, warmed relations with Cuba. So what does that really mean if the embargo is still in place? How have relations with Cuba really changed change since Obama addressed them? Well, I think under the Obama administration, relations were moving in a, in a somewhat different direction. The problem with the embargo is that it's been institutionalized in, in U.S. law by the uh, by Congress, and the president can't end the embargo. It has to be ended by Congress. And Congress has been unwilling to do that, either under Obama or in particular under uh, under our current president. And then you mentioned how uh, in the when the Soviet Union fell, how the uh, how Cuba lost all of its financial resources and all of its support that it was getting from the Soviet Union. How much did Cuba embrace capitalism following the fall of the Soviet Union in order to save socialism in the communist project? I would say that the embrace of certain market mechanisms without a full embrace of capitalism has been a a slow, careful process. Um, Ever since uh, the Ever since the demise of the Soviet Union and the demise of the Eastern Bloc trading uh, group called Comecon, um, Cuba has found itself in a difficult position. Um, it's almost had to open itself up to international investment, and that means opening itself up somewhat to capitalism. But at the same time, it, it's tried to maintain its socialist principles, free universal medical care, free universal education. Uh, subsidized public transportation, uh, subsidized uh, food for for most people. Um, it, it tr- it's tried to maintain its capitalist principles, but it, it finds itself in a difficult situation. It's it, like I said, it's a small, poor country under constant attack by the United States, and so its options are limited. Does the willingness for Cuba in the late 80s, early 90s to employ some market um, some market mechanisms in order to turn around their economy, does that make Cuba any more likely during this writing of the new constitution to have this new constitution be more pro-market than we might expect? Are they, does, did that experience, do you think that experience made Cubans more flexible in accepting market initiatives? I think it's been a, a mixed bag. Um, 
Cuba's been experimenting with with small capitalist developments, in, for example, in the oh, in things like small stores, restaurants, um, uh, private taxis. It's been experimenting with that to some extent, um, with mixed results. I mean, Cubans are used to. Cubans grew up in a paternalistic society in which they're used to the state providing all the basic necessities. And when they open themselves up to the capitalist market dynamics, the same thing happens in Cuba that happens in the United States. For example, in, in the restaurant industry, something like 80 or 90 percent of all restaurants go under, go under in the first three years of their existence. They can't, they can't survive in a capitalist economy. And many people who decide to invest in the United States in a restaurant, lose their entire life savings in the first two or three years. The same thing is happening in Cuba. People are realizing that, that in order to make it in a, even a small capitalist market economy, um, they have to work their tails off, you know, 10, 12, 14 hours a day, which Cubans are not really used to doing. Um, and, and they often lose their life savings in the process. Um, so it's it's been a difficult situation for Cubans. You were also writing or mentioning the uh, inequality that came with the post-Soviet Union economic policies in Cuba. How much is inequality in Cuba a threat to socialism, a threat to the communist project? Because when I was when I was reading that, I thought it seems like inequality is threatening not just capitalism, not just uh, Western democracy, but it's also threatening communism or socialism, state socialism in Cuba as well. Is inequality threatening all forms of government around the world today, no matter what that form of government is? Yeah, I think the big difference is that under capitalism, inequality is a foundation of capitalism. I mean, everybody in a capitalist country understands that some people are going to get rich and most people are going to be poor. Some people are going to, or many people are going to work really hard, and some people are going to do basically nothing and get rich. Um, in in Cuba, the foundation of socialism in Cuba has always been equity, um, and it's always been, you know, that nobody's going to get rich working off or uh, uh, benefiting from somebody else's labor, whereas that's been a foundation of capitalism. So, um, in a sense, the the ideological foundations are very different, although the reality is 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 not dissimilar. So if nobody is supposed to benefit off the explo- exploitation of labor of others, I mean, that seems to go completely against what, as you're just pointing out, what capitalism is. So is there any way that uh, Cuba can actually adapt to capitalism without undermining their socialist cause? Well, I think what, what they're experimenting with is very small market-oriented uh, businesses, for example, uh, beauty parlors, um, small restaurants, uh, individual, individually owned taxi cabs. And I think what we're going to find, and this is a process that they've been working through, can, for example, a Cuban hire other Cubans that, uh, profit from their labor to get rich? And I think that what we're going to find in this Constitution is that there's going to be a small amount of that allowed, but it's going to be very limited. And, and much of the, the profit that's going to result from this uh, exploitation of labor is going to end up being taxed. 
and is going to go back into the socialist project in the form of free education and free health care. Um, so it's it's an experiment that the Cubans are are working with. It's very different, for example, than the experiment that the Chinese are working with right now. Um, the Chinese have basically turned into a, a capitalist country with uh, with a uh, communist uh, uh, party leading the, the capitalist experiment. And there's no longer any any sense of equity. There's no longer any sense of um, exploitation being wrong or being prohibited. Um, and it, it's hard to say what the, what, where, the, where Cuba is headed right now, but the, the or where uh, China is headed right now. But the Cubans have decided that that's not the, road, the route that they want to take. They want to maintain a level of equity and a level of socialism that really is, doesn't exist anyplace else in the world right now. Yeah, and uh, I found this very fascinating, the comparison to what China can and what Cuban can do. You write, this leaves Cuba with a fundamental, theoretical, practical problem. Is socialism constructed primarily, or at least in the final instance, on the development of an abundant material foundation by whatever means, or primarily on the socialist consciousness of the population? Both Fidel and Che Guevara advocated the centrality of socialist consciousness. Cuba tends to emphasize central planning with limited market openings and development of culture, education, and foundational concepts like equity and socialist consciousness. By comparison, the Chinese Communist Party is taking the road of socialist modernization or market Marxism. So is Cuba then more socialist than China? Do Cubans even view China as a socialist country anymore? I think most Cubans do view China as a socialist country and, in fact, an important ally. Um, But it's a different kind of socialist country. I I mean, let's face it. Anybody who experiments with socialism right now in this capitalist world is, in fact, experimenting. And part of the experiment, perhaps the foundation of the experiment, comes down to uh, labor discipline. How do you discipline labor? In a kind of a pre-capitalist economy, an agrarian economy where people work for themselves, they were their own discipline, disciplinarians. They decided on how they were going to work, when they were going to work, how much they were going to work. And it was a, they had what was called unalienated labor. In other words, people controlled their own labor and the, the methods of their own labor. In a capitalist country, labor is disciplined by the threat of hunger, the threat of poverty. Either you work or you go hungry. Um, In a socialist society like Cuba, where Cubans get all the basics, I mean, they have food subsidies that will last through probably the the first two weeks of the month. They have uh, subsidized public transportation in Havana right now. It costs about the equivalent of U.S. four cents to take a bus ride downtown. Uh, They have free health care, free education. Um, almost every Cuban has a place to live. Um, although there's a shortage of housing, there are no homeless in Cuba. And so the basics are, are provided. So what, how, how, do you, how do you deal with the problem of uh, labor discipline? Um, in Cuba, there's, there's a good deal of labor indiscipline. And part of it has to do with the kind of um, individualism that's promoted in the United States and that Cubans increasingly have access to through for example, Hollywood uh, movies or U.S. television via the Internet. Um, And so it becomes an ideological question of 
How do you promote labor discipline? Is it part of a collective project that everyone buys into democratically? Or is it part of a, a project of labor discipline through poverty, through the threat of hunger, which is what we see under capitalism? I think the Cubans are are betting on the possibility and have bet on the possibility for the last 60 years of labor discipline being a collective project, people buying into that project. And I think that the writing of this new constitution is part of this process. It's a very democratic process. And the more that people buy into the rewriting of the constitution um, and the more that they feel control over their own labor, the more that they will buy into this, this kind of socialist consciousness which is the foundation, the only alternative foundation to um, the, the threat of hunger and the, the threat of poverty that disciplines labor under capitalism. While I was reading your article, I kept thinking, kept wondering why Cuban communism didn't fail in the late 80s, early 90s when the Soviet Union collapsed as so many of the Warsaw Pact communist countries fell. Uh, so I started thinking about that. And then when you started writing, then when you were writing about socialist consciousness, I was wondering to what degree did that socialist consciousness protect Cuban socialism from the early 1990s economic uh, crisis and to this day, does socialist does a socialist consciousness has that protected Cuba from uh, any type of from uh, having losing their socialist con- so- socialist government? In the nineties, certainly after the demise of the Soviet Union, socialist consciousness was the the saving factor. I mean, the the collective consciousness of the people in Cuba was the saving factor in terms of the socialist project, and they were led by by people like Fidel Castro, uh, the late, at that point, uh, Che Guevara, but whose writings were still very important in Cuba, uh, and it was still seen as a kind of a, a, an ethical, moral leader in Cuba. And that was certainly the thing that, that rescued Cuba from, from any kind of a counter-revolution. The United States did everything it could to promote that counter-revolution in the 90s, and it had absolutely no success. I think that today the situation has changed a bit. I think that the socialist consciousness that that held people together back in the the 1990s has taken a battering from uh, from international capitalism, has taken a battering from the the U.S. embargo. I think it's still strong, but it's not as strong as it was in the 1990s. You write the market mechanism in combination with private ownership for the means of production yields a disciplined labor force uh, through the threat of poverty, whereas socialist consciousness depends on the collective will of workers to contribute according to their abilities, as you were mentioning earlier. How much is socialism then a matter of consciousness? How much do you have to believe in socialism for socialism to work? How, how dependent is socialism's sustainability on that socialist consciousness? Because if you say it's waning a little bit, I'm wondering what impact that may have on the new constitution. You know, this, this is the big question. I mean, Marx himself was a, was a materialist, and he thought that uh, one of the marvels of capitalism was the ability to uh, develop a productive uh, foundation for uh, for an economy of plenty, which would eventually turn into socialism. Um, as it turned out, history uh, historically, socialist revolutions happened in third world countries, 
not not first world countries, countries like China, Vietnam, Cuba. Um, and so Marx's predictions were, in, in the materialist realm, were kind of overcome by the need for a socialist consciousness. Which one works out? I don't know. We're, we're in the midst of that experiment right now, and we'll see, I guess. I, I'm, the one thing I am certain of is that capitalism has no future. Um, the, and we're seeing that right now. I mean, the, the way the capitalism is evolving in the United States and in Western Europe, the kind of nationalism that's developing, the fragmentation of the, the capitalist class, um, the growing poverty within the working class, within the uh, rural residents in, in all of these developed countries, um, the, the constant destruction of the environment by capitalism. All of these things are indications of a capitalism that's in demise. And I, I personally, I think that socialist consciousness is going to win out in the, in the medium and long term. But, you know, I don't think any of us have been very good at predicting history. Uh, later on in this morning's show, we'll be talking to sociologist Leah Stokes, who wrote, was co-author of a research paper that shows evidence that political representatives in the U.S. government within our representative democracy do not have an accurate understanding of their constituencies, priorities, and demands. Now, the Cuba has been working very diff- uh, very hard on this uh, process of writing this new constitution dating back to 2011 going through a very open process, at least as much as, you know, you report in this article. So uh, to what extent will Cuba's constitution accurately represent the priorities and demands of the people? Is the process, to what degree is the process certain to or guaranteed to lead to what Cubans want for the 21st century? Everyone I talk to in Cuba, and I have a lot of friends down there on, on various sides of the political spectrum, Um, most of them are convinced that this process of rewriting the Constitution is a good, healthy process. I mean, it began with the Communist Party, and about 20% of the adult population in Cuba are members of the Communist Party. And this isn't like being a a member of the Democratic or Republican Party in the United States where you pay $25 a year and that's it. To be a member of the Communist Party in Cuba, you have to be uh, active in your neighborhood, you have to be well-respected, you have to be a a moral and ethical example in your neighborhood. Um, you have to be active politically. You have to attend weekly meetings. Um, I mean, all of these things indicate that this 20% of the population is the most politically active 20% of the population that there is. In the United States, we have a very passive population politically. I mean, how many people voted in the last election? 40% of the, of the eligible voters, maybe? And that's just a question of, of going to a, a voting stand and voting once every two years. We're not even talking about the activity, political activity of the population. So I think we have a very passive so-called democracy in the United States, whereas I think in Cuba there's a much more active democracy. To you, what explains why Cuba is rewriting its constitution now? What is the what does that reveal to us about the situation within Cuba? I think Cuba is going through some crises. They uh, depended on relations with the, the Soviet Union for many years. Um, after that, they were somewhat dependent on on um, relations with Venezuela, 
and I, I don't want to say this was a one-way dependency. This was a two-way dependency. Venezuela sent oil to Cuba at subsidized prices, and Cuba sent thousands of doctors, very well-trained doctors, to Venezuela to provide medical care in areas of Venezuela that um, under previous administrations had never seen medical care. So it's always been a, a two-way relationship. Um, but what with the, uh, the apparent not demise, but at least the the downfall of much of the socialist project in in um, Venezuela, and with Cuba looking for allies in the world, I, th- I think the most likely one is probably China right now. But um, even even Russia is, is moving in to to provide a certain amount of uh, support. We'll have to see. I mean, the United States is still the most powerful country in the world. It's still 90 miles from Cuba. It's still waging war regularly against Cuba, although we don't hear about it in the news media in this country. So we'll have to see what happens. And you're right that given the impact of the U.S. embargo and the existence of counter-revolutionaries in South Florida, intent on returning Cuba to a purely capitalist path, unbridled market Marxism, may not be an option for socialist Cuba. Why? What would Cuba be afraid of happening if they did embrace some kind of idea like market Marxism? Well, I mean, the biggest problem is the, the is abandoning one of the foundations of the Cuban Revolution, which is equity. Um, and the, the uh, abolition of exploitation of labor, but one person exploiting another person. These have been foundations of the socialist project in Cuba. And with uh, anytime you introduce a level of market discipline or a level of capitalism, you run the risk of introducing uh, rampant exploitation like we see in China right now or um, um, a lack of just lack of equitable equitable distribution of the resources resources that are available in Cuba. Um, so it would be abandoning part of the revolution, I think. And you write that when it comes to Cuba deciding to write a new constitution, there are several reasons for this bold move. The current moment is characterized by a transition of political power from the historic generation, which fought and won the 1959 revolution, to a new generation connected to the world via Internet and accustomed to free education and health care, guaranteed employment, other things that you mentioned. To what degree is there any generational gap culturally and maybe even more importantly, politically, between the historic generation and the new generation? And how much is that the driving force behind the writing of the new constitution? I think this is a major force behind the writing of the new constitution. Um, Part of, you know, the foundation of the the Cuban revolution was collective struggle. And the, the historic generation was involved in that collective struggle. Many people died fighting in that revolution. Um, people people made sacrifices for the revolution. Um, there were incredible projects like the, for example, the the uh, literacy campaign in the early 1960s, in which tens of thousands of Cuban youth took part in in educating uh, Cubans who had never gone to school before, mainly in the countryside. And so these kinds of collective social projects were important in the development of the collective consciousness. As as Cuba developed free health care, free education, um, 
basically everybody has a house in Cuba, subsidized food, et cetera, et cetera. This be- people became accustomed to that. And the new generations now, ever since about, the, about 2000, 2005, the new generations are now accustomed to that, have grown up with that. And that's no longer part of a result of collective struggle. They consider it a right, a right of passage. And when those things become a right, then what is the responsibility of the population? Is it to demand those rights, or is it to continue the collective struggle for those rights? I think that's a debate that's going on right now in Cuba. You write how those who are considering the new constitution, uh, that they that they understand that, quote, Cuba is built on seven fundamental principles outlined in the conceptualization, and you list them as sovereignty of the nation, popular base of the Communist Party, universal commitment to social welfare, Cuban values with Jose Marti, the 19th century Cuban literary giant, as perhaps the most important referent. Active engagement by socialist civil society. And then these two, limited controlled engagement in global commerce. And finally, strong international relations, particularly in the global South and Latin America. Now, these are the fundamental principles of Cuba that are being kept in mind in the writing of the new constitution. But the final uh, principles, again, are limited controlled engagement in global commerce and strong international relations. How can you have both limited engagement in global commerce and strong international relations from a perspective through the lens of U.S. popular mainstream politics that would seem to be antithetical, that you can't have one without the other? What does that reveal about the Cuban view of the world as opposed to the one from here in the U.S. that they believe that they can both have limited engagement in global commerce and still have strong international relations? Well, the strong international relations were founded on relations, for example, with uh, 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 Brazilian, uh, Brazil under control of the Workers' Party, for example, or uh, uh, relations with Evo Morales, or relations with, um, uh, oh, for example, uh, Venezuela or other countries that were oriented toward, a, if not a socialist project, at least a progressive uh, leftist project. Many of those countries are, are now changing their, their political stance. And so I think Cuba finds itself more and more isolated, which is one of the reasons why it's going further afield and looking for, for allies. Um, one of the reasons that, for example, they, they've done a number of trips to uh, China recently. Um, so I think Cuba finds itself in a difficult situation in, in, around that particular uh, balancing act. As far as uh, controlled international development, Cuba doesn't have a, a whole lot of natural wealth. And so if, if there's going to be investment in the country, it's going to have to come internationally. And Cuba is going to have to make certain uh, certain reforms, certain compromises with international capital, in particular in the tourist industry, um, in order to attract those those uh, those international dollars to invest in the tourist industry. These are compromises that are part of the real politic of trying to build socialism in a capitalist world in the 21st century. 
You write that in 2000, Venezuela and Cuba signed an agreement that provided 115,000 barrels of petroleum per day in exchange for the work of thousands of Cuban doctors in areas of Venezuela that were severely underserved in terms of health care. Due to recent unrest in Venezuela, by 2016, oil shipments dropped to 42,000 barrels per day. How bad has Venezuela's economic crisis been for Cuba? And beyond that, how bad has it been for the region? Because I was wondering, to what degree do you think the public here in the U.S. understands the impact of U.S. foreign relations in and throughout Latin America? Because that's an issue that has come up in the past when we've spoken with, among other people, Rewire.News immigration reporter Tina Vasquez when it comes to the factors driving people from countries like Honduras, Guatemala, and Mexico. So I'm wondering if people here in the U.S. have an understanding of the impact that U.S. policy towards Venezuela has had, not just on Venezuela, but throughout the entire Latin American region. Yeah, in, in part, it's U.S. policy. And in part, it's what what I mentioned before. What I, what I see is the demise of international capitalism. It used to be, let's face it, back in the 1960s, 1970s, in what was known as the golden era of capitalism, uh, capitalist countries could expect 4%, 5%, 6% annual GDP growth. Today, we're looking at GDP growth of, of 1.5% or 2%. This year, we might get up to 3, 3%, but that's going to be an oddity, and it has to do with the, uh, the massive uh tax cuts, most of that wealth going to the rich in the United States by the Trump administration. Um, And so we see the demise of capitalism. We see increasingly a capitalism capitalism that is not only exploiting workers, but is exploiting natural resources and, uh, and carrying out environmental destruction throughout the third world. And so you end up with countries like, oh, Guatemala and Honduras or Venezuela where there is very little political stability, where capitalism, the capitalist class uh, runs rampant, um, and people want to get out of the country. I mean, in, in Honduras, people are leaving by the tens of thousands every year. Um, and the, the United States blames, of course, the, the poor people are leaving these countries. But the fact is that it's the demise of the capitalist system. It's a capitalist system that is push these people beyond the ability for them to endure anymore. And so they're coming to the United States looking for the possibility of some kind of a job, the possibility of some kind of an alternative. You write that each model of socialism, whether it's Cuba's or China's or Marx's, offers a distinct understanding of work and in particular how to discipline labor to efficiently produce the abundance that can serve as the foundation of a socialist society in transition to communism, as you were mentioning earlier. Is the contradiction of socialism, then, that it depends on an abundance of production while simultaneously protecting labor from exploitation and profiting others, is that the highest hurdle, the largest barrier, largest barricade for socialism to overcome in its pursuit of communism? Um, certainly one of them. Uh, I think that not just um, socialism, but every economy in the, United, in the world depends on the production of, a, of surplus. 
depends on offering the promise to their population of a, at least a decent standard of living, if not an increasing standard of living. And this is one of the problems with capitalism right now. It can no longer promise, for example, in the United States that our, that my son's generation is going to have a better existence than my generation did. Um, so we're seeing a, a decline in capitalism. Uh, socialism is, a, is an alternative, I think, to that decline, but it's going to take a whole lot of work. Um, part of it is the, the production of surpluses that can be re- redistributed, not surpluses that can be owned by a, a small capitalist class, but surpluses that can be distributed throughout the population. After all, it's the, the work of the population that's creating these surpluses. Why shouldn't it be distributed to the majority of the, of the people? One last question for you, Tom. We've been speaking with International Education Director of the Mexico Solidarity Network, Dr. Thomas Hansen, who posted the article at the website of the Autonomous University of Social Movements, headline Challenges for Cuba's New Constitution. You can find out more about the university at ausm.community. And as I was saying earlier, this is a record-breaking appearance for Tom. This is Tom's second appearance on This Is Hell. And he's setting a record for the longest time between appearances on our show because last time Tom was on was August 21st, 1999. Oh, the 20th century. It was grand, Tom, and I'm glad I shared it with you. So, Tom, one last question for you. And as always with our guests, it's the question from hell. The question we hate to ask, you might hate to answer, or our audience is going to hate your response. You write about the impact that the Internet has had on uh, young Cubans culturally and how it has led them towards a little bit towards the kind of individualism we have here in the United States by having access to U.S. movies. We have uh, spoken in the past. Now I'm forgetting her name, Marilyn, I think. I can't remember her last name. She talked to us about the offline Internet that they have in Cuba because it's so regulated by the government that a lot of people just download parts of the Internet and then they trade those with their friends. But how much do you think today's technology increases the likelihood of communism or decreases the likelihood of communism? Because while the internet might have an impact on Cuba culturally, you also write that given the development of new computer models, central planning may prove to be more efficient by avoiding the widely recognized excesses and uh, herd mentality of private economic actors and the regular crises that are inherent to capitalism. So is... Technology, the savior for or the biggest enemy of communism in Cuba? I think the Internet, just like any other technology, depends on who, who controls it. Um, I think that there was a lot of promise when the Internet first uh, came into being that it was going to be this huge democratic platform, free exchange of ideas. Um, I think what we found is that it's something very different that there are a couple of large corporations that control most of the content on the Internet, uh, Google and Facebook come to mind, um, that people have a tendency to, uh, t- because of the way that Google and Facebook control the access to information, people have a tendency to end up in sort of small communities on the Internet that just reinforce one set of ideas or another, rather than being a place for exploration and, and discovery. Um, so I think, it, like any other technology, it depends on who controls it. And I think we're moving toward a control, if, if not already there, 
sort of control of the internet by a very few large corporations who have capitalized its content. In other words, they want to make money off of it. It's not. It's no longer a, a platform for open communication. Tom, I really appreciate you being back on the show, and I promise that we will have you back on the show before 19 years from today. I promise <laughs> you that, sir. Thank you. Take care. This is hell, where we put people before profits, which turns out to be a horrible business model. Capitalism is a killing machine, and it's done a number on the world's wild animal population, and for whatever reason, the World Wildlife Fund won't use the C word of capitalism in their latest report. Instead, they replace it with the misleading C word, consumption. We'll try to wrap our minds around why the World Wildlife Fund won't blame capitalism for environmental devastation when we speak with Anna Anna Pygott, who posted the article, Capitalism is Killing the World's Wildlife Population, Not Humanity, which was posted at The Conversation. Anna is a postdoctoral research fellow in environmental humanities at Swansea University. Speaking of our horrible business model, this week on Patreon, We did two podcasts. The first was Tuesday, Election Day, and I told my epic dystopian tale of voting here in Chicago, what we vote for and why I vote, followed by the latest chapter in our ongoing monthly Patreon-only series, An Oral History of the Iraq Wars that Happened Here on This Is Hell. In this month's installment, we played our 2007 conversation with Rolling Stone's Matt Taibbi immediately after uh, Matt had posted his column, The Great Iraq Swindle, How Bush Allowed an Army of For-Profit Contractors to Invade the U.S. Treasury. Then, on the following day, on Wednesday, the day after the election, I gave my media analysis of cable TV news coverage from the previous evening's election night. And uh, the featured classic interview that we shared on Wednesday was our talk with Black Agenda Reports. Glenn Ford, shortly after Barack Obama was elected president, when he had just posted the story, Glenn had just posted the story, Obama's center-right presidency, the die is cast. But you can only hear that and another 100-plus Patreon podcasts that we have done so far by subscribing at patreon.com slash thisishell. Alex, did you share anything else on Patreon over the last couple of weeks? Uh, not yet, but I have actually a really good one lined up that's a mystery, but I'm posting it first thing Monday morning that uh, everyone's going to be really into. And that is something that is a bonus podcast for anyone at any level uh, on Patreon, because usually there's like a $4 cutoff for the main archive podcast that we do on Tuesdays uh, with Chuck, where he does a monologue. Uh, but I'm also sharing just exclusive stuff. And uh, the first one, the next one, sorry, is going to be out on Monday. Special thanks to everyone who joined us on Patreon this week, including Peter, Steve, Pete, Bart, Rebecca, and Zach. And you can join them in supporting This Is Hell by becoming a Patreon subscriber at This Is Hell. Or I'm sorry, at patreon.com slash This Is Hell. So show your support, and you can support us via Patreon and get an additional podcast every week, subvertising stickers, lower donation levels for our free gifts, Go to patreon.com slash thisishell to find out more. Also, you can just go to thisishell.com and click on support to see all of the gifts that you can get for supporting This Is Hell. On next week's Patreon podcast, Alex will be choosing the classic interview we will be sharing. 
Uh, I'm sure you haven't decided on that yet because I think I may have just sprung that on you instead of sending that to you in an email yesterday like I was supposed to. So Alex will be selecting this week's Patreon podcast classic interview. Thanks to everyone who supported This Is Hell this week and in the coming days, weeks, months, and years. Your support will be needed more than ever as dissent continues to be shunned by the establishment corporate mainstream media. Show your support by joining us on Patreon at patreon.com slash thisishell. That's patreon.com slash thisishell. Okay, let's read your responses to this week's question from Hell, which is, what's a catchier name for the Anthropocene? What's a catchier name for the Anthropocene? All replies get read on air right now. Our favorite one's a book we featured earlier on this week's show, A Happy Future is a Thing of the Past, The Greek Crisis and Other Disasters by Pavlos Rufos. Again, the question from hell is, what's a catchier name for the Anthropocene? Alex, you have all the answers to this week's question because, because. Shane M. says, karma's a bitch. <laughs> Andrew T. says, whoa, the humanity. Gorilla G. says, code Zulu. What's a catchier name for the Anthropocene? Ethan C. says, melted. Ronald A. says, gonzo. Kelly H. says, man bites poo. Kelly H. says, man bites poo. All right. Uh, Pete V. says, making the scene. <laughs> oh, boy, Pete. Gabriel C. says, the end. Laddie O. says, morning in America. Lawrence C. says, the WTF. <laughs> Chris B. says, Led Zeppelin 4. Wait, who said that? That was Chris B. Uh, Fergus F. says... The Before Times. Uh, Matt P. says, Fatuous Ex Machina. Emil J. says, The Product Age. James H. says, The Obscene. Uh, Adam A. says, The Coprolocene. I looked that up and it's gross. (laughs) Tom G. says, Cockroach Heaven. Dan K. says, The Obscene. There's a lot of obscenes. Uh, Matthew B. says, Planetary Diarrhea. (laughs) <laughs> Jessica B says, hey, hold my beer. What? <laughs> What's a catchier name for the Anthropocene? Monkey H says, warrant. To which Joshua J says, how about White Snake? James H says, the fossilicious. Oliver J says, the danger zone. Jeffy, our own Jeffy D says, the plasticine. Shane M says, this might be my favorite one, the John Galtacene. <laughs> Sarah M says, the sixth extinction. Mark A says, the manscaping. Stephen S. <laughs> said that. that was Mark A. You know Mark A. Yeah. Uh, Stephen S. says, anti-communism heaven. Uh, Mark uh, Mike M. says, the cluster scene. Mm-hmm. Andrea J. says, oopsie daisy. <laughs> Crying emoji. What's a catchier name <laughs> for the Anthropocene? David S. says, the age of arrogance. Peter K. says, the fat Burgassic era. Uh, Warren L. says, act six. The cockroaches prepare to inherit. Camillo P. says, Waterworld. <laughs> Donald H. says, The Sixth Cleansing. Fabio L. says, Slarty Bartafarst Era. <laughs> nice. Joshua J. says, Human Transmitted Diseases. Ronaldo M. says, eh, just people, be, people just being people. Mark S. says, The Plasticine. What is a catchier name for the Anthropocene? Plasticine was a great band, by the way. Uh, was that, that was a band? Yeah, in the uh, 60s and 70s in uh, Czechoslovakia. They're really fantastic. Ooh, I'll check them out. Uh, John B. Josh B. says, The Drawn and Quaternary. <laughs> uh, Robert H., another good one, says, The Misanthropocene. <laughs> That's very good. Uh, Garrett L. says, It's the end of the world as we know it, and I feel fine. William or Marshall 
W says, age of lying in the bed we've soiled. <laughs> Ryan W says, the ants go where unseen era. All right. Charlie N says, or how I learned to stop worrying and love eating bugs. Joshua L says, the biza scene. It's got two Z's and everything is bizarre. <laughs> David M says, the final scene. Living the life on the sunny coast of the Arctic, eating roaches. Rosario R. says, La jodidez de un mundo mal gustado, the effed up situation after a very badly mangled world. Apologies for mangling that Spanish, too. John K. says, the E-I-I-E, entropy is inevitable extinction. (laughs) Mark A. says, pie chart, or how I learned to love and embrace big data. What's a catchier name for the Anthropocene? A couple more. Astrid N says, The Age of Consequences. Lisa B says, The Dawn of the Twinkie and the Cockroach. Jeff C says, That time we killed everything for money. <laughs> Who said that? Uh, that was Jeff C. Graham M says, The Everything is Fine, even though it's all burning. I'll just put my fingers in my ears and ignore facts scene. Tom G says, The Afto Iani Cola scene. Greek for the This is Hella scene. How is that not catchier than Anthropocene? Well, it's not catchier for making <laughs> me speak Greek. Uh, also, a couple ones uh, via Twitter. Gorgeous Greg says, The Mertzipa scene, obviously. Ugh. Eat Fart 69 says, That time, though, even though we knew it caused them heartburn, Earth ate it anyway. Earth digestion. B. Flankinson says, The <laughs> Garfieldo scene. Uh, Cesium Helium says, The Cheese Age. Uh, this is another one I like a lot. Sandwich, Sandwich Man A said, The Bourgeois scene. <laughs> DM Thompson 360 says, is GeoHell still trademarked? Michael Nealon 9 says, Extinction 2032, Electric Boogaloo. Ill Cats says, the myopic epic or the myopoc, if you want to get cute. Adrian CW says, epoch fail. Trivial X says, the end. And Big Group Animal says, hell world. All right, first I want to make a correction. Uh, the name of the band wasn't Plasticine. It was the Plastic People of the Universe that I was thinking of. Great psychedelic band from the 60s and 70s during Soviet-controlled Czechoslovakia. Who was the person who said Oopsie Daisy again, Alex? I just That's the one I kind of missed the name on, the person who said uh, Give me a second to control F this. Because uh, I also liked uh, Kelly saying Man Bites Poo. Chris saying, calling the Anthropocene Led Zeppelin 4. Tom G, Cockroach Heaven. Jessica B., Saying hold my beer was possibly the best non sequitur of all of them. Andrea J was the person who said oopsie daisy. Andrea J. Okay, let me put that down here. Uh, I liked uh, uh, Shane saying the John Galta scene. Mark's uh, the manscaping. I thought those were both really great. Jeff saying that time we killed everything for money. Let me tell you my response to the question from hell. What's a catchier name for the Anthropocene? The obvious answer is the Endocene, and it's the end as it's in the as it's the uh, end of the scene, the happening that is humanity. So I'm going to take that another step, and I think a catchier name for the Anthropocene is the happening, as I can't believe this is happening. We're going to go with Andrea J for saying a catchier name for the Anthropocene is. Oopsie Daisy, so you are going to get a copy of Pavlos Rufos's book, The Happy Future, whatever, what the hell was the name of that book? Let me get back. The Happy Future is a Thing of Happy the Past. Happy Future is a Thing of the Past, The Greek Crisis, and Other Disasters. You can go see Pavlos here in Chicago on Monday, November 19th, when he'll be speaking at the Seminary Co-op Bookstores, 5751 
Southwood Lawn beginning at 9 p.m. And you can find all of Pavlos's tour schedule on his Twitter feed at P Rufos. That's P R O U F O S. This is Hell Office Hours. Happen this and every Wednesday from 6 p.m. to 9 p.m. at Carrie's Lounge, 2251 West Devon. The bar downstairs from the This Is Hell office and our studio as well. You may have heard some of our podcasts recently. Our show last week was online only, and you can find that at our website, thisishell.com, as well as on social media. And we have been podcasting live from above a pool table, which I find incredibly important within my own familial history as my father was born in an apartment above a pool table and now the Mertz family has made it all the way above a pool table again. Drop by the bar any Wednesday evening, hang out and chat me up and I'll give you a free book related to the show just for dropping by, that is, if I remember. And I've been doing a horrible job of remembering lately and the books are starting to pile up. So, come on in, say hello, watch me drink, Demand that you get a free book and some This Is Hell advertising stickers so you can subvert public advertising with the words, This Is Hell. This Is Hell office hours happen every Wednesday, 6 p.m. to 9 p.m. at Carrie's Lounge, 2251 West Devon. I want to thank the people who hung out with us this week. It's starting to get cold out, so we want to thank the listeners who braved the cold to join us during office hours on Wednesday. First, it was fantastic seeing Wally, who just had some insane brain surgery that really freaked me out. Jeff Dorchin joined us this week, so it was great to hang out with him. And I was glad he got to meet some of our listeners, like Anna. Also, thanks to Joel, Pete, Johnny, the other Johnny, Elliot, Jordan, Shelley, Pete, Peter, Shankar, and I'm certain... I'm forgetting a few more of you, so I apologize. You, too, can talk me up and get free books and stickers at This Is Hell Office Hours every Wednesday, 6 p.m. to 9 p.m. at Carrie's Lounge, 2251 West Devon. And that's not the only chance you will have to party with the This Is Hell crew, as well as our amazingly supportive listeners. This Is Hell is hosting our third annual holiday office party Wednesday, December 19th, all night long at Carrie's Lounge. Last year we had a huge turnout, as it turns out that lots of people's workplaces, lots of listeners' workplaces, either don't have holiday office parties, or they don't actually have an office to host a party, or they don't like the people at their office, yet they still want to attend a holiday office party with their coworkers, especially the ones who they actually like. So if your work doesn't have an office and you want to have a holiday office party, Bring your colleagues to the third annual This Is Hell office party on Wednesday, December 19th. If your office doesn't have a holiday office party because they're cheap bastards, commiserate with coworkers at our holiday party. Or bring the cool kids from work who you actually want to party with instead of those other morons you have to tolerate on a daily basis. Bring your friends to This Is Hell's third annual. Now I'm being told it's probably like the eighth or tenth annual. I don't know. I do a horrible job of counting. This is Hell's third annual, or whatever number, holiday office party Wednesday, December 19 at all evening long at Carrie's Lounge, 2251 West Devon in Chicago. Coming up on this week's This is Hell, capitalism is an environmental killing machine, moment of truth when Jeff goes bats, 
and your elected officials think you're far more conservative than you actually are. All that stuff. Plus, we'll find out what Alex has been up to on social media. We want to thank some listeners for supporting This Is Hell and sharing the show online. Maybe we'll get to Twist Off Knowledge and, of course, what's happening on upcoming episodes of This Is Hell. Another end of the world is possible. This is hell. Wildlife groups aren't blaming capitalism for the devastation it has done to wildlife. Here to tell us what's being blamed instead and why, Anna Pygott posted the article, Capitalism is Killing the World's Wildlife Populations, Not Humanity, which was posted at The Conversation. Welcome to This Is Hell, Anna. Thank you. Thanks for inviting me. Anna is a postdoctoral research fellow in environmental humanities at Swansea University. You can find out more about Anna at annapygott.com. Dot wordpress.com. We have a direct link to it at our website. Follow Anna on Twitter at Anna Pigot. That's Anna P-I-G-O-T-T. The, you write that the latest Living Planet report from the World Wildlife Fund makes for a grim reading, a 60% decline in wild animal populations since 1970, collapsing ecosystems, and a distinct possibility that the human species will not be far behind. The report repeatedly stresses that humanity's consumption is to blame for this mass extinction, and journalists have been quick to amplify that message. Before we get to what you argue is the real cause, what does the World Wildlife Fund mean by consumption, and how much does, in your opinion, consumption, whatever that is, have an impact on declines in wild animal population? Yeah, yeah, I mean, it uses the word consumption about 54 times, I think I, I counted in in its document. Um, and I, I mean, I'm not arguing that the, the word consumption is wrong at all. I think um, it is hitting on roughly the right kind of cause of environmental destruction um, the resources that humans consume, whether they are to feed or clothe or shelter us or whatever. But um, it doesn't really hit on what is driving consumption. And I think that was what I wanted to, to point out in the, in the articles, just that um, you know, it comes close to, to identifying, well, it uses the words culture and economics and unsustainable production models as key problems, but it doesn't really join the dots, in my opinion, by really just naming capitalism as the kind of crucial and often a causal link between those those things. And I think in doing that, it, it, in, mis, in, it, like, in not doing that, it, it really like prevents us from seeing what, what the, the true kind of causes of the extinction that it's that it's highlighting is. Why does it seem to, why does the report tiptoe around the word capitalism? In, in, does that reveal anything to you about the World Wildlife Fund? Is this indicative of the World Wildlife Fund's environmental yeah. policies? Yeah, I'm, it, yeah, it could be. I mean, there's a kind of a more optimistic view and a more cynical view, I guess. I'm, I suppose, um, the cynical view is that um, big NGOs like WWF are increasingly linked with corporations. Um, and actually, I didn't know this at the time of writing the article, but people have since um, pointed out that WWF is part funded by some very big corporations such as Coca-Cola. And, um, and, and yeah, it's quite possible that it's, it's necessary for these organizations to tiptoe around really nailing capitalism because 
because they are in part reliant on these corporations. And also it's a really nice way for these corporations to to, to kind of prevent a nice green veneer to their activities with, with, the, with their associations with um, people like WWF. Um, so that's the kind of um, the cynical view. Um, I guess a less um, less cynical view is just that there's a lot of tiptoeing around the word capitalism because we it's not really mainstream. It's kind of um, it's quite a triggering word. I discovered after writing the article in the comments, um, I discovered that capitalism kind of triggers a lot of reaction. It's it's a kind of an ideological concept. So often people kind of immediately jump to communism just because I'd mentioned capitalism and um, there's a lot of ideology around it rather than it just being used as a purely like analytical term a technological like a, a technical term for describing um you know what's going on in the world um so there's a lack of just language around being able to pinpoint um what's happening and actually just naming capitalism I think um yeah and I, I really I think that that's that's important to be able to, to name it so I think the tiptoeing around is yeah, it's partly to do with the yeah the ideology around capitalism, it kind of being a very triggering word. Um, and also, I see in my research increasingly that a lot of um, a lot of NGOs and wildlife uh, kind of environmental charities are kind of trying to they're using kind of behavior change um, research or ideas to to try and frame their message in order to align with what they assume are already people's values. So. There's a kind of desire to to fit their language with what's already out there, so that maybe people will accept the message more readily. Um, so that means because we're already in quite a capitalist-dominated world, they're starting to use language which is essentially um, kind of perpetuating a capitalist logic. So you start seeing these words like ecosystem services and natural assets, and um, yeah, and I think all of these things just kind of stack up against the possibility of 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 corporations well sorry um yeah and NGOs and charities actually identifying capitalism. Does that make sense? <laughs> yeah, and it does. And uh, you were, you also pointed out, as I was mentioning earlier, that the latest Living Planet report from the World Wildlife Fund, uh, that journalists have been quick to amplify that message of blaming consumption and avoiding the word capitalism. What do you think draws journalists to be attracted to the storyline that the problem is consumption? What narrative or conventional wisdom do you think blaming wild animal population declines on capitalism instead of or on com, on consumption instead of capitalism what do you think that what storyline does that fulfill why why is the media yeah. so quick to blame consumption but not capitalism yeah well possibly similar reasons as before with the kind of corporate link and you know media corporate links blah blah, blah. but um also um well yeah com- consumption my feeling is that consumption kind of directs blame more to individuals rather than um, systems or processes, if that's what you can kind of call capitalism. So, And actually, there was a very good article in The Guardian a little while back um, which said that just that, that neoliberalism basically is kind of conning people into thinking that um, um, that, that climate change is an individual problem rather than a, a problem of... of um, kind of broader system. So, yeah, I think that there's somehow it fits in with the kind of individualization of of our cultures 
and that it the con- this word consumption kind of directs direct blame to- towards us as individuals what we consume on a daily basis kind of thing, which is of course important, but I would argue that there's there's like broader things going on in the background that are driving that consumption in the first place. Um, um when actually maybe our we would be more powerful, although our consu- con- consumer behaviors are are relatively powerful, but we might also be even more powerful and more successful in kind of um, finding alternatives to capitalism if if we could kind of uh, use our collective power to challenge those the corporations and the elites and the you know government policies that are perpetuating those those systems. So you know through kind of public action or voting or whatever. Whereas yeah, the word consumption sort of somehow it's it's much more apolitical i think it's it's not as a politicized um term as capitalism obviously so yeah it's it's kind of easier to swallow but perhaps less less useful in a lot of ways and uh, and you were saying earlier how capitalism is you know always a problematic thing within whatever the conversation we happen to be having how we don't even talk about capitalism when we're discussing poverty so is um, capitalism do you notice in your reading and your research that is capitalism uniquely ignored in news reports about either whether it's wild animal population declines or any environmental uh, reporting? Do you notice that within environmental reporting of all kinds that capitalism is always avoided in the analysis? Hmm. Yeah, that's a good question. I not always. It depends. Obviously, it depends on the on the media outlet that you're that you're looking at. I think mainstream media, yeah, quite often, or in a very similar way to the WWF report, it kind of it identifies that yeah, it's to do with economics and culture and production models. But but yeah, capitalism just feels like it's just too much of a kind of triggering word to to use. Um, and I think actually a lot of um, a lot of media goes a long way to actually supporting a, a kind of capitalist logic through the language that it chooses. So um, if you think about the way that um, we talk about the, these kind of environmental crises often in terms of humans and nature, and they're very like distinct categories, which are by no means kind of... Um, well, real, well, they're not real. They're not real. They're kind of invented categories, right? So, um, but capitalism needs those two categories to exist, kind of ad, as almost adversary, ad, kind of adversarial categories, almost to see humans as, as separate from nature, um, in order for nature to be exploitable, kind of endlessly. <laughs> um, um, and so, I think media is definitely hugely like implicit. Like it's it's hugely influential in creating that impression and I um yeah especially with this use of the word humanity in the WWF report I think is kind of links to that um I don't know if that's something to go into now or later on but um yeah so I yeah that's a difficult one to answer I think it really depends on which media outlet you're you're looking at I think I have definitely come across reports that do name capitalism but I think yeah in general the mainstream mainstream media does shy away from it a lot you write the World Wildlife uh, 
fund report chooses, as you were just saying, humanity as its unit of analysis, mm-hmm. and this totalizing language is eagerly picked up by the press. The Guardian, for example, reports that the global population is destroying the web of life. This is grossly misleading. How is that misleading? What don't we understand about the impact that capitalism is having on the so the web of life when we use terms like humanity? Sure. Yeah, so I mean, firstly, I think using such a broad term and like, yeah, totalizing term as humanity is just simply inaccurate because, I mean, the report is claiming that humanity is responsible for um for this this sixty um, percent decline in, in wildlife, and it links that to consumption, but it and it does show that, that that there is a disparity in consumption, but it really doesn't go very far in in kind of linking that to what percentage of of humanity are actually causing the majority of the damage. So, if you look at CO two reduction, so the the richest ten percent of people in the world are responsible for fifty percent of CO two emissions. Um, the poorest half of the population are only responsible for 10% of CO2. Um, and it's been estimated by, this is all from an Oxfam report, so the richest 1% have a footprint of around 175 times that of the poorest 10%. So that just gives kind of a glimpse of the of the like huge inequalities between uh, the consumption between the richest and the, and the poorest. Um, and therefore the, the differences in who is actually um, causing the most, the most, you know, is responsible for most of this this wildlife extinction. Um, <clears throat> so I think, firstly, it's, it's problematic to use the word humanity because, yeah, it's inaccurate. Um, but it's also a very um, fatalistic kind of term, and I've found in my in my own research that it's quite a disempower- disempowering um, way to frame environmental problems. So, um, you know, when you use the word humanity, it kind of creates this impression that. There's something inherently greedy and destructive about humans, um, and I think that that's well. It's yeah, it's a quite an unfair kind of portrayal because as we've just discussed, this you know it's a, it's an, only a small percentage of of the world's population that are co- causing the majority of the damage, um, and that's actually a really kind of self-loathing kind of approach to what humans could be or might become. So, you know, lots of my re- research I've interviewed people and I've asked them kind of what they think about the future, what are their hopes and their fears and um and time and time again people would, would just use the words our well, humans are too greedy, um, we're like a virus on the planet, we're just a plague. Um, you know, I've heard people just say these horribly like apocalyptic things about human beings that they're just inherently greedy. Like in front they've said this in front of their grandchildren. <laughs> it's it's a very um yeah, I think it's it's a really common way to perceive ourselves. Um and I don't think it's helpful at all. Um, it's very disempowering. It's very it kind of it kind of encourages a sense of apathy, and and it also prevents us from actually seeing that there are many many examples of like people and societies and communities who who aren't inherently greedy or, or aren't kind of treating the environment with such kind of contempt. Um, so yeah, it's also like which it's also about asking the question: which humanity are we talking about? Like. If we talk about humanity destroying the environment, then we're actually kind of tarring like 99% of the world's population with the same kind of capitalist kind of brush as as the people who are doing the most the most kind of consuming and destructing. So, um, 
yeah, I think it's it's that's 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 one big one big problem of using the word humanity. Probably, yeah, and it's very widespread. And I think, yeah, using capitalism instead of humanity would be a good step in the right direction to just shifting people's perspective a little bit on on what is the actual cause of most of this destruction. And of course, people are implicated, but it doesn't necessarily mean that people per se are inherently um, destructive and that maybe there are alternatives. I was kind of relieved when I found out that a small minority of people are causing the vast majority of uh, environmental damage. And the reason that I was kind of relieved is because one of the things that we've been told over and over and over again is that for us to accurately, effectively, and efficiently address climate change, we're going to have to make huge sacrifices in our quality of living. Would changes to address our environmental concerns actually have very little on the vast majority of us because the vast majority of us aren't the ones who are causing environmental damage? Yeah, I mean, it's a tricky it's a tricky one to get into because I mean, I mean, people like me and you in in our in, in yeah in the UK and the US we are already in probably in the ten the top ten percent. Um, I would have to do some more research to figure out exactly, but you know, we there there is definitely like there are lifestyle changes that need to be made, but they aren't the responsibility isn't totally on us as individuals. Like there are system there are the kind of capitalist system system i want a kind of system that's trying to find a better word but um is kind of is driving a lot of the consumption and and kind of making the lifestyle choices that we have very limited in a way um and i think there's also a degree of it's a very convenient narrative to 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 be kind of well convenient for anybody who would want to see capitalism kind of persist in the way it is it's um convenient to to portray any changes as huge sacrifices because that makes it much more difficult to do but I think there's also um we forget and we normalize the kind of bad stuff or well, maybe you don't on your show because it's called this is hell <laughs> but but um you know it's about recognizing like that there's there's some really like not very nice things going on in the world and even in our day like even in our relatively you know affluent lives that, that you know, me and you are living. It's like we still have very polluted cities. We have, you know, like terrible infrastructure, whatever. But there are many things that that could definitely be nicer about about life. Um, and I think, yeah, I don't know whether I'm really answering your question, but um, so yeah, <laughs> maybe you want to. <laughs> so you know, uh, uh, the other thing I want to mention is that you write the world. Wildlife Fund report is right to highlight ex- uh, exploding human consumption, not population growth, as the main cause of mass extinction. And it goes to great yeah. lengths to illustrate the link between levels of consumption and biodiversity loss. Why is consumption better to blame than overpopulation? Isn't consumption an outcome of overpopulation? And that's what everything comes back to, that there's just too many people on the planet and it's limited resources? Because this is something I hear all the time, and I'm very lucky to have yeah. had guests on the show to kind of debunk this. So is consumption, why is consumption better to blame than overpopulation? Well, for exactly those reasons I think that I outlined earlier, so the richest 10% of people in the world are 
are overwhelmingly responsible for um, for ecological impacts and for carbon dioxide emissions. Um, so it's when you use the population argument, it, it disproportionately shifts the blame onto portions of the world's population who have higher birth rates, which are almost always poorer nations with much, much smaller ecological footprints. Um, so it, it's just that I, the population argument, I think, is, is um, just a huge blame shifter away from the the people who are doing the most consuming, but having the, the fewer children, um, to the world's population who are having more children, but are, are not consuming much at all. So, um, yeah, I think, yeah, yeah, the population argument is just fundamentally flawed in that respect. And there have been lots of studies that have showed how um, there there is definitely capacity to, to feed a growing world population of 9 billion or more. Um, it's just about changing how we do agriculture. And currently, um, currently in the way that agriculture kind of operates under capitalism is it's not there's you know a lot of waste i think i read a statistic the other day like a, a third of food producers actually ended up being wasted um um yeah and there's so it's yeah it, yeah i think there's not much more to say on that argument other than that it just really it shifts the attention um away from the uh, the hugely um the hugely consuming lifestyles of the richest most affluent portions of the world, and it allows them to keep on doing what they're doing because they can say, well, those other people just need to have fewer children so that I can carry on doing my stuff. So, yeah. You write that the World Wildlife Fund uh, report stops short of pointing out that capitalism is what compels such reckless consumption. Capitalism, particularly in its neoliberal form, is an ideology founded on a principle of endless economic growth driven by consumption, a proposition that is simply impossible. Now, because you use the word or because uh, you talk about uh, capitalism in this neoliberal form, we're going to have people sending me emails saying neoliberalism is a misleading term. It's just capitalism. You should never use the word neoliberalism ever. There are those who argue that the term neoliberalism is a distraction, that it's just capitalism and it lets uh, capitalism avoid its responsibility for all of its impact on our lives. How is environmental destruction different under neoliberalism? Mm. That's a very good question. And to be honest, I'm, uh, there are people much better qualified than me to talk on that because I'm not an expert in the, the ins and outs of capitalism. But um, my, my impression is that under neoliberalism, capitalism is um, it's kind of becoming very kind of insidious, like as we were talking about with the with the WWF report and the the language kind of the kind of greenwashing. Um, you know, capitalism kind of operates under frontiers, right? So it needs it always needs to be expanding to new frontiers in order to find in in the pursuit of profit, essentially. And then um, when it hits a crisis, that it just encourages new strategies for more profit. So we could argue that kind of this this era of, of neoliberalism, if that if it is an era, has kind of coincided with the, the worst effects of um, of environmental kind of decline. But at the same time, we've seen suddenly this this kind of cropping up of of um, like market solutions for the environmental crises, which is 
a lot of environmental charities and NGOs and campaigners are kind of jumping on the back of this almost because it's seen that, okay, so it's almost like, oh, it's, if we can't beat it, then join it. So <laughs> you have to find capitalist uh, solutions to environmental crisis. So things like ecosystem services and payment for ecosystem services, um, basically trying to find ways of, of bringing the environment into the remit of capitalism. So that means that, in effect, um, like externalities have to be costed. So, um, but then, kind of the the, the logical argument that might you might think, but then that means that there's a to be made from these externalities, which is what the externalities are what are the, is the bad stuff. So, like the kind of pollution and the deforestation and the loss of wildlife. But then, if if market forces are getting involved with that, then then you're kind of just extending a capitalist logic and a capitalist approach. Um, and, yeah, and it all becomes, kind of, yeah, it's a kind of a greenwashing exercise almost. It, it looks like it's kind of doing good and capitalism is finally sort of paying its way almost, but I have my doubts and I think many other people do as well. Isn't blaming capitalism, though, the same as blaming ourselves? After all, we humans are the cause of capitalism, just as we are the cause of climate change. So how is blaming capitalism not blaming ourselves as individuals? Yeah, that's a good point, because, of course, capitalism comes from somewhere. Um, I think my, I don't know, my perspective on that would be that Humans, we in general, we're very we're kind of storytelling creatures, right? So, and capitalism has been a very, very effective kind of kind of pervasive story that has really stuck quite well. Um, so, yeah, of course, humans are kind of um, perpetuating capitalism, not, but again, not all of us. And there are many, many people who are who are resisting it and who are not living according to kind of capitalism logic um and of course there have been in in his in history as well and i mean capitalism is a relatively relatively new thing in kind of the history of human beings so um yeah i think um i've lost the thread now would <laughs> repeat your, repeat your, the question was um, yeah. I, I can't even remember where we were now. I was right in the middle of looking at something else. I just want to get a couple more points I want to get to. Does pointing out that a small minority of people are causing the vast majority of environmental challenges our planet is facing reveal the inequality of revealing the inequality of capitalism? Does that make the statement that uh, the environmental challenges we face are being caused by capitalism? political in nature, because I can see Fox News Channel calling the World Wildlife Fund report anti-capitalist, socialist, communist, even anti-American, if the report had criticized capitalism. So isn't the reason that capitalism isn't avoided by environmental groups, and I'm not just talking about the World Wildlife Fund, who might have corporate sponsors and have a dependence upon that, but in general, don't scientists, don't environmentalists, try to avoid linking capitalism to environmental damage that we're seeing on the planet right now simply so they can be seen as more object- objective and more apolitical? Um, well, yeah, I guess I, I can't really 
argue with that. So, so sorry, you're suggesting that they're not so organizations aren't using the word capitalism just so they can re- remain apolitical. Yeah, yeah, and that's what I'm trying to figure out. If that, like, if they're yeah. kind of cornered, you can't really be critical yeah. of capitalism as an environmentalist because if you are, then people are going to think you're, you know, you're a communist. Meanwhile, yeah. the actual yeah. cause of the problem is capitalism. So it seems yeah. like you're cornered by the politics of the day, and you really can't get out of that corner. Yeah, uh, absolutely, and I, yeah, I, I do, I do think that that's, that's true. I think, yeah, as I, as I said before, it seems to be the capitalism really triggering, like. Uh, triggering word, um, yeah. You kind of cast as a kind of crazy radical. Like even having written the article, I felt kind of shy then. Kind of <laughs> seeing kind of friends and colleagues kind of you know thinking, expecting me to be wearing a kind of communist badge or something. And yeah, the reaction in the comments it was automatically like you know, oh, so it's not capitalism. Then what do you suggest? Communism? Well, that didn't go so well, did it? And it's a, I think it's a really like hints at a kind of lack of imagination and again like a lack of stories about what what alternative might be um and i don't know what the solution is really for 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 yeah as you said like organizations organizations being cornered in this kind of not being able to mention capitalism and i i guess it it actually maybe start more kind of on the ground with with people just using starting to talk about it more like conversations about it are really important um using just using that language more kind of mentioning the word capitalism talking about it discussing it and and then that kind of trickles and you know possibly trickles into organizations and it becomes more challengeable um maybe that's a kind of utopian view of mine but i i yeah i think that that's i think language is foundational in the kind of building of different stories so that it does become possible to, to challenge capitalism one last question for you, Anna. We have been speaking with Anna Pygott. She posted the article, Capitalism is Killing the World's Wildlife Populations, Not Humanity, which was posted at the conversation. Anna is a postdoctoral research fellow in environmental humanities at Swansea University. She works as a field studies tutor and outdoor activities organizer in Dorset, Shetland, and Italy, and was a media intern for Green Futures magazine at Forum for the Future. It was a sustainable behavior officer in Swansea University's sustainability team in 2012 and 13. You can find out more about Anna by going to annapygotgog.wordpress.com. We have a direct link to it at our website. This is hell.com. And you can follow Anna on Twitter at Anna Pygott. That's P-I-G-O-T-T. One last question for you, Anna. And it's what we call the question from hell, the question we hate to ask, you might hate to answer, or our audience is going to hate your response. How effective can an, in, how effective can an environmental group be that doesn't challenge capitalism? If an environmental group is not anti-capitalist, in your opinion, to what extent is it an environmental group? Uh, yeah, that's a good question. <laughs> that is a question from hell. Um, I, yeah, I guess um, fundamentally, I kind of, my personal opinion is no. I think that we need to challenge the the kind of, the, yeah, we need to challenge capitalism because it is not, at all sustainable for us or for non-humans um but in in the kind of present moment you know this is kind of an urgent situation um and if if um if organizations are actually reluctant to 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 
to just call capitalism up by name and actually tackle it. There are many other things that can be done that that do challenge that do kind of work outside the bounds of capitalism to create a different kind of world. Um, and they're happening already in plenty of places. Um, and it's about really seeing the cracks in in capitalism and kind of exploiting those and like building kind of movements in those. So, um, yeah, I think that that's that's a really important thing for environmental organisations to do. And it's and especially important if they don't want to actually call out capitalism, then stop using the kind of dualistic ideas of humans versus nature because that's that's like the lifeblood of capitalism. Um, capitalism needs us to think of nature as, I guess, separate entity which is like cheapened and exploitable and that's that's been kind of historically where all the kind of worthless stuff has gone to like non-humans and women and indigenous people like have gone into that box called nature and that makes it exploitable so if we stop kind of using this language which which allows kind of capitalism to make those kind of pit pit humans and nature against them it goes a long way so just Trying to find the language is really important, and it's difficult because, in particularly in the English language, we don't have many words which help us conceptualize the word, the the world in as a kind of life, a kind of lifeful web of <laughs> web of being. So, um, you know, we just need to think of it as humans and nature, and, and I would say that that's really a good step for organizations who don't want to. Anna, I really appreciate you being on the show. Again, Anna Pygott posted the article, Capitalism is Killing the World's Wildlife Populations, Not Humanity. We have a direct link to it at our website, thisishell.com. Thank you so much for being on this week's show, Anna. Thanks for having me. Take care. Thank you. Bringing you bong-hitting journalism since 1996, this is hell. In just a moment, we have the moment of truth with Jeff Dorchin, and this week, Jeff goes bats. And that's normally where the show would end. But this week we have a bonus half hour of This Is Hell. Yes, four and a half consecutive hours of commercial free radio, which means in the very near future I will be going to the bathroom. Let's go to the update booth with Alex to find out what he's been up to on social media. So what have you been doing on Facebooks, Twitters, whatnot? Oh, on Facebook I shared a big essay on capitalism and migration uh, from Viewpoint Magazine that I'm really excited about called The Border Crossing Us. And we're trying to work out an interview with some of the writers behind that piece for a future show maybe next week. Although we don't know how long our shows are going to be for the next couple of weeks at WNUR. Uh, also, I shared a Commune Mag piece. Oh, hold on. Jeff is calling. That's an update for you. Give me a second. Uh, I just want to tell you real quick that uh, another thing that Alex uh, shared were a couple of stories that we shared during our show this week. Actually, a lot of the stories we shared during our show this week. But uh, our two show, two. St- the two stories that Alex shared that had the greatest reach amongst our social media audience, they were both featured on today's show. And more and more in the future, we will be uh, featuring the authors of articles that are the ones that our listeners seem to have liked the most online on social media. Go ahead, Alex. Now, I know he's listening to the show. I don't know why he would call me when I'm talking. I don't know. Thanks, Jeff. Oh, he's actually still listening, so I should, probably shouldn't talk, Shh. It, talk crap about him. Yeah, I know. Also, I shared a Commune magazine piece by sci-fi author Kim Stanley Robinson on dystopias in fiction and in real life that's really good and a uh, commune magazine uh just launched and it's pretty good uh so i'd recommend you check that out uh, probably gonna have a couple people from that show from that magazine on future shows on twitter 
listener Jack, who's a loyal listener, told us that we should get Natasha Leonard on to talk about her big new intercept piece on the links between the police and white supremacists. And uh, we agree about that. Hopefully we can get that nailed down soon. Get her back on the show. It'd be great. Yeah, yeah, she's great. And then also uh, Vladimir Lenin, uh, one of our favorite Twitter followers, uh, said... Election days are probably the most depressing day of the year for me because it reminds me of just how entrenched abstract power is in most people's minds and how it's probably going to make a long series of catastrophes for people to remember their real agency. I agree with you a lot about that, uh, Dylan. However, also, I'll look on the bright side. Uh, a long series of catastrophes is going to happen a lot sooner than people think. So that's looking uh, on the bright side. And finally, on Instagram, I shared a new pic. I'm sure you've walked by this uh, store on Devon, Chuck, uh, right near our studio uh, which is a dollar store that has mm-hmm. a giant banner out the front that says 30% off everything. So it's a uh, 70, 70 cents cent store. 70 cent store now. <laughs> yes, I don't know. That's really <laughs> there's t- a, tough times out there. There's a lot of really weird things in the neighborhood, like the place next door that at one time uh, repl- or supplied free internet access. And then after doing some spell checking, they change it to Inetternet. And I'm pretty sure the internet and the internet are better versions of the internet that we don't have access to, but Desi Culture does in the West Ridge neighborhood. The best way for you to get the word out about This Is Hell is to share the entire show or individual interviews or correspondence reports. This Is Hell has a very, very, very limited promotional budget, so we want to thank all of our listeners who share the show online. Thanks this week. Goes out to the people who publicly shared the show or interviews or correspondence reports this week. Lots more shared. But many choose to do so anonymously, and considering Facebook's sharing of data, it's probably a good idea. Thanks to thanks for sharing goes to Matt, Julie, Stephanie, Jan, Jesse, Lawrence, Greg, Nick, Gorilla Gramophonics, Marco, Robert, Chris, Frank, Jeffrey, Maya, Eric, Brad, Susan, the new Jim Crow mass incarceration in the age of colorblindness. Sounds like a really fun Facebook page. Angela, United States of Africa, Rob, George, John, Edward, and Edmar. And I want to thank all those people, especially this week, because last week our show was online only. If you want to hear those interviews, if you want to hear the entire show, if you want to hear Jeff's moment of truth, you can go to thisishell.com and find them there. But we want to really thank everybody who shared the show a lot, show last week. Our interviews with Glenn Ford from Black Agenda Report on how uh, you know this election doesn't mean that much for the unfortunate situation where marginalized people find themselves today. And then Greg Palast is pretty much telling us that the uh, uh, election had already been stolen. So that was some happy news. So anyway, the only way you can find that is by going to thisishell.com. And we want to thank everybody who shared last week's online only show. Thanks to all of you for sharing This Is Hell, however you share the show, whether it's through Twitter or Facebook or SoundCloud or whatever. If you want to hear your name read on air and simultaneously spread the evil word about the good content of This Is Hell, all you have to do is share This Is Hell. Yeah, switch those two around this week. Coming up on this week's This Is Hell, a moment of truth when Jeff goes bats and your elected officials think you're far more conservative than you really are. All that stuff, plus we might get into listener feedback. We want to thank some listeners for supporting This Is Hell and, of course, what's happening on upcoming episodes of This Is Hell. Live from Hangover Country, this is Hell. Alex, I know you have. Hefe on the line. One, two, you know what to do. 
some bats of the Red Forest. Welcome to the moment of truth, the thirst that is the drink. Among the trees swarm at least 122 distinctly different species of bats, each unique to the Red Forest on the fat island of Langostan in the middle-seasoning archipelago. Hardly anyone ever goes there other than bat enthusiasts, professional and amateur, because of the great confusion. But no bat has yet been denied into one or another official taxonomic slot, so it's unclear what is so bewildering. Maybe it's the sheer number of species in so limited a space. No one knows how limited. In any case, the climate is both tropical and subtropical and extremely humid. Two main genera of bats comprise the numerous species, all but two of those two exceptions later. These two grand groups are the bug eaters, the, which echolocate, and the fruit eaters, which do not. The bug eaters tend to be smaller than the fruit eaters. Bug eaters have been known to eat birds on occasion. Particularly vulnerable to predation is the typeface hummingbird, which is the size and shape of an 18-point times New Roman comma and the smallest hummingbird known. They only exist in the red forest. Happily, they are a prolific species and swarm in their thousands among the apricot shrubs like minnows amidst seaweed. Among the bug eaters are the orchid-nosed bat, the bee bat, the tissue bat, and the glass-eared bat. Each species echolocates at a unique frequency in one of the musical modes, frequently mixolydian. The fruit-eating bats, or dog-faced bats, seem to be descended from the early wild gliding foxes of Pan-Asia. However, they are no relation, except in the very distant sense that all mammals are. As stated above, these bats are neither able nor inclined to echolocate. They just look around with their eyes. As they are nocturnal, they often bump into things. While bug eaters range in size from that of a bumblebee to that of a robin, the fruit eaters are much larger. The largest, the schnauzer dragon, known to possess a wingspan of upwards of eight feet. The indigo umbrella monkey is of more manageable proportions, meaning it can be fit conveniently into an overnight case, although one should expect it to be displeased with the experience. The indigo umbrella is one of the above-mentioned species falling neither into one major genera nor the other. It eats both insects and fruit, as well as birds, roots, tree bark, fungi, cheese, small prey animals, snakes, snake eggs, cake, buns, onion rings, flower nectar, and carrion. I have just remembered one supremely annoying aspect of traveling to any of the islands of Langostan or anywhere in the middle seasoning archipelago. The in-flight service on the regional Barcola Airlines. Never is anything given gratis aboard an intracoastal flight on this airline. Everything from earbuds to ice is for purchase only, and the flight attendants take frequent strolls up and down the strangely wide aisles, calling out hot dogs, food for sale, pretzels, salt cod, milk, prawns, pigtails, peas, kingfish, purple yam mush, and I cerveza Coca-Cola limonada naranjada agua fresca. The prices aren't unreasonable, but on returning to the civilized world of normal things, like complimentary ice, one has the unpleasant feeling of having been nickel and dimed at every opportunity. As the reader or listener has probably surmised, the umbrella monkeys are a subcategory of fruit eaters. 
the indigo one being only ambivalently positioned among that crowd due to its freakish dietary habits. The umbrella monkeys are so called because of their baboon-like faces, the umbrella-like curvature of their wing support finger bone structure, and their propensity to climb in the upper branches of trees. Interestingly enough, among umbrella monkeys or climbing umbrellas or umbrella spiders or simply umbrellas is found another exception to the fruit eater versus bug eater bifurcation, the yellow umbrella, alluded to in the Grouse Family novelty song, Yellow Umbrella. Hey fella, your yellow umbrella, yellow umbrella has never looked sweller. Wella, wella, a yellow umbrella. Da, 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 da. The yellow umbrella is the color of a very yellow, yellow Labrador retriever, and its short-haired face looks quite like a miniature version of the canid's visage, though its torso resembles more a plump angora rabbit-like thing, except when swimming, hunting its favorite food, fish, as well as river polyps, with its wings clutched to its sides, at which time it looks like a blonde, tailless, dog-faced river bat with a spidery external rib cage webbed with yellow leather. While bug eaters echolocate and fruit eaters do not, the yellow umbrella, though ostensibly in the latter clan, uses something akin to radar. It emits radio waves at frequencies in a narrow band range between 88.3 and 91.7 megahertz, commonly known as the college radio or public radio transmission ghetto, though its signals rarely interfere with radio programming due to its limited broadcast range. You would have to bring a yellow umbrella into a studio and broadcast its signals via antenna to detect them, as people do now and then for reasons described below. A gland or organ, approximately the size and shape of a quail egg or new potato, situated below the bat's sternum, produces the electromagnetic emission. When the yellow umbrellas signals have ever been translated into audible sound, something quite strange has occurred. The pulses are invariably invariably a gargly, high-pitched phrase in Spanish, Portuguese, Garifuna, Kekchi, Mopan, Mayan, Creole, Plautdeutsch, or English, similar in a way to the mimicry of a parrot, but in content always with a leftist slant. This may be due to the left leanings of visitors to the Red Forest, who concern themselves with ecological conservancy, indigenous rights, resource management, bats, and other like occupations. Free de Atawahahi was one, referring to the Red Forest indigenous inhabitants. Another, crush the patriarchy, abolish debt, dissolve the IMF, private property is theft from the people, abolish prison. Yet another was ban, slash, and burn, though that would have been thought to refer to a destructive agricultural practice in the Amazon region, 1,500 miles from the Red Forest. Along similar lines, for a long time, the signals dissented to the rule of Brazil's fascist president. Down with Bolsonaro was the sole phrase they would broadcast for months, whenever brought into the local transmission station by jocular anti-fascists. The president was quite embarrassed by this, and tried his best to influence policy in the archipelago, over which he has zero jurisdiction, cajoling and wheedling any way he could to get someone to hunt the yellow umbrellas to extinction, or ruin their habitat, or restrict left-wing travel to the Red Forest, or encourage right-wingers to go there and march through the undergrowth shouting pro-Bolsonaro slogans, 
President Donald Dump, at times explicitly or implicitly a target of the signals, attempted to exert influence with threats of a trade embargo to no avail. None of either demagogue's efforts was the least bit effective. The signals of the yellow umbrella monkey bat, one of only three semi-aquatic umbrella monkey species, remain firmly on the Marxist to post-Marxist end of the ideological spectrum, much to the chagrin of the ruling and owning elite in the region and beyond, and to the delight of activists, academics, revolutionaries, scientists, teachers, folk singers, investigative journalists, liberation clergy and their congregations, and podcasters. For the time being, protected by impish activists and their popularity with the region's populace, the bats of the red forest of the fat island can be expected to flourish. On average, at least one never-before-seen species of bat is discovered there each year, to say nothing of the as-yet-undiscovered possible curative properties of one or another bat's guano. And almost everyone agrees that with the amount of bat shit barraging us daily in the world, it would be nice if some of it if some of it turned out to have a use. This has been the moment of truth. Good day. Now you know that I am not one to be regularly or easily offended by <laughs> blasphemy. I mean, at the, begin- yeah. at the beginning of this show, I say this is God's favorite radio show. Prove me wrong. I don't care if you use God's name. No one has done that yet. Right. Uh, I don't care if you use God's name in vain or Illinois or wherever you use God's name. I really just don't care. But my blasphemy sensitivity, my blasphemy meter has been challenged, Jeffy, by a new oh. TV show. What is it? Have you okay. heard of the CBS show? Because they always have these Christian dramas on CBS. God friended me. <laughs> no. What? There is a show called God Friended Me, and I didn't know it existed. But on like the second or third episode, I saw a commercial for it, and they said, "This is how this is the this is the tease." On this week's God Friended Me, what happens if God unfriends you? <laughs> Wait a minute. Are they talking about God on Facebook? Yes. Why friended? Why Facebook? That's it. It's the social uh, media for old, annoying uncle. So I guess God is kind of like an old, annoying uncle. So God on Twitter is so much better. Well, right, because it limits him, you know, because he's always a little bit wordy. I wish they would have stick, stuck with uh, 144 characters just for God's Twitter account. But this leads me to a question, Jeffy. Yeah. What the hell is on Allah's Instagram page? Oh, that's a good question. I, I mean, he's not allowed to have an uh, Instagram. Instagram is all pictures. Right. It's See? a, what is it? I mean, it's all just going to be weird geometric patterns, I think. Alex was saying that he would have one of those, you know, default avatars where it's just like a silhouette. Or an egg. <laughs> That's what he said, too. Look at that. Look at you two oh, thinking on this page same. All right, Jeffy, how was your stay in uh, Chicago over the last week oh, or so? God. It was so great, man. Thank you so much. Thank you. And, Laura, thank you, Alex. You were a blast to talk to when we went to the bar. And uh, Pete and Wally and everybody who was there, Chris. And 
Mikkel and David and all of Theater Ublek, Martha Bain for hosting the uh, Ublek show. It was such a great time. The Ublek show was great. The radio show was great. All the alcohol was great. And and all the, oh my God, I ate at that Yemeni place just before I left. The one over on, on Claremont and Devon, how was it? It was great. I had the organ meat breakfast <laughs> and uh, a side of shukshuka. What's shukshuka? It's just like scrambled eggs with vegetables and stuff. Oh, crazy. But it, it, there, that organ meat thing, there's actual a brex, breakfast meal with, the, or, with organ meat, or you just order No, it's the appetizer. Okay, it's I see. the appetizer. I just had it for breakfast. It was the same size as the egg. <laughs> and those breads they give you are like, they're the size of a pizza. So if anybody visits us during uh, This Is Hell Office Hours, joins us during This Is Hell Office Hours, just a block west and like 20 feet north of Devon. It's, I think it's called Yemeni Restaurant. I can't remember what no, it's, it's called. No, it's called Sheba. That's it, Sheba, S-H-E-E-B-A, Sheba. It's a Yemeni restaurant. One E. Over, over only one E, whatever. Um, so uh, it's over it's at Devon e. and Claire. I just heard that in my talk back. Only one E. <laughs> <laughs> All right, Jeffy. Until yeah, next time, we'll tell we'll tell you on Monday uh, what the deal is with next week's. Uh, this is hell. Yeah. Oh, Pete was so great too. He gave me a great taste of the rye whiskey finished in Sautern cask. Oh, do, Harry Sound. Did you have uh, the smoked malort? I never did. I'm gonna have to come back for that. Oh my god, that's insane! Where they inject smoke, cherrywood smoke, into malort. It's it's insane. Sounds horrible. <laughs> it's awesome. Don't say horrible things like that. All right, Jeffy, till next time. <laughs> okay, I'll stay beautiful. You do too. Thank you, sir. Live from the good old US of A, where capitalism is all our pimp. I'm just waiting for you to admit it to yourself. This is hell. In just a few minutes, we'll talk during our bonus half hour of this week's This Is Hell with Leah Stokes, Assistant Professor of Political Science at the University of California, Santa Barbara, who is one of the authors of the report, State Capture, How Conservative Activists, Big Businesses, and Wealthy Donors Reshape the American uh, States and the Nation. Leah and her colleagues argue that your elected representatives in our representative democracy do a horrible job of actually representing the demands and priorities of their constituency. We'll find out how and why that happens in just a bit. Leah is currently writing a book on fossil fuel opposition to renewables policy. If you want to make certain capitalism doesn't become This Is Hell's Pimp, our pimp, support This Is Hell at thisishell.com. There's now a couple ways you can support This Is Hell by going to This Is Hell and clicking on support. One is to become a Patreon subscriber patreon.com slash this is hell but if you go to thisl.com slash support or thisl.com and you click on support everything about the patreon thing is explained there so we want to thank the people who have supported this is hell in the last week thanks this week goes to john rohit sarah and seeing in fabric who it's great to see back supporting this is hell seeing in fabric writes finally this is Hell Merchandise. One shirt, men's small, please. I'm a Patreon member, but I don't need my damn discount. You are 100% worth my donation. Can I please get a subvertising sticker, too? Well, we'll send you 10. Thanks to everyone who supported This is Hell this week and in the coming days, weeks, months, and years, the Trump administration. Your support will be needed 
more than ever. Every so often here on This Is Hell, we like to give you crime tips. Sometimes those tips are on how to protect yourself from crime. Other times we suggest ways you can commit successful crimes. But today's crime tip is a warning on how to poorly commit a crime. You know that clever idea you have of stashing your weed in the pulled-down hood of your hoodie? Yeah, the cops already know about your oh-so-clever hiding spot, and they're definitely going to bust you for holding. So do what everybody else does and crotch your frickin' weed already, okay? That makes this week's crime tip. Don't think you're smart because you hide your weed in the pull-down hood of your hoodie. Coming up on this week's This Is Hell, your elected officials think you're more conservative than you are. Plus, what's happening on upcoming episodes of This Is Hell. Alternative to alternative radio, independent from independent media, this is hell. Your elected representative is doing a horrible job of representing you. In fact, their aides are so misrepresenting you that your elected official thinks you're way more conservative than you actually are. Here to tell us why and how, Leah Stokes, assistant professor of political science at the University of California, Santa Barbara, co-published along with her colleagues Alexander Hurdle Fernandez and Mato Mildenberger, the research paper State Capture, How Conservative Activists, Big Businesses, and Wealthy Donors Reshape the American States and the Nation. Welcome to This Is How, Leah. Thanks so much for having me. One small correction there. That's actually Alex's new book, which is a wonderful book that's forthcoming. And our paper is called Legislative Staff and Representation in Congress. But I'm sure Alex is very happy to have you uh, announce his book name there. Well, I am going to blame New York Times because that's where I got that ins- information from. So Leah, no problem. <laughs> Leah is, like I was saying, is currently writing. You're currently writing a book on fossil fuel opposition to renewables policy, though, correct? Yes, I'm writing a book called Short-Circuiting Policy about renewable energy laws in the states. That's right. And when will that be out? Uh, Probably 2019 or 2020. Academic books take a long time to simmer away. All right. Well, I'm really looking forward to uh, seeing that book when it is published. You are affiliated with the Bren School of Environmental Science and Management, as well as the Environmental Studies Department at the University of California, Santa Barbara. And you can follow Leah on Twitter at Leah Stokes. That's L-E-A-H Stokes. You uh, discussed your study in an opinion column that was posted at the New York Times and headlined, Congress has no clue what Americans want. Before we get into your writing and study, while I realize that this is a study focusing on the United States, do you have any indication that this is unique to American democracy, that unlike, say, other Western industrialized nations that define themselves as a democracy, that they do not experience the same disconnect between political representatives and their constituency? Is this unique to the United States, or is this something that happens in representative democracies everywhere? Yeah, so I'm actually Canadian. I'm not a U.S. citizen. I have a green card. So I know a fair amount about democracies in other parts of the world. And, um, you know, I think the jury's still out on that. Uh, There are people trying to replicate our study in other countries, um, including, for example, the Philippines. I talked to somebody this week about that. So we don't really know yet. But um, I would imagine that some of the issues that we find in the United States hold in other countries as well. Uh, It could be that the United States is particularly conservative in the way that it views its citizens, and maybe that's a particular uh, function of the U.S. Um, electoral system or uh, U.S. democracy. But it's, I, it's the jury's still out. I wouldn't want to say one way or the other how other democracies are functioning in terms of 
whether or not they are doing a good job representing public opinion. I would generally guess they are not. They're not as poorly representative? No, that they're not doing a very good job. For example, if you take climate change, uh, that's an area that I spend a lot of time working on. There are public opinion polls around the world that show that majorities want their countries to be acting and doing more on climate change. And yet, if you look at the actions of countries around the world, they fall remarkably short of Paris commitments or of doing anything to really stop the unfolding crisis. So I don't really think that um, democracies are taking into consideration adequately average citizens' views and really passing policies that are in line with what the, what the public wants. So this isn't a problem unique with the United States, and it's more, would you say, is it a systemic problem then within representative democracy, that representative democracy is, has a shortcoming when it comes to being a good representative of the people that they're supposed to represent? Yes, I think that's probably true. You know, democracy is an ongoing process, and we're moving away from sort of elites who were, you know, barons or had wealth inherited and representing us uh, because of that historical wealth that they held towards people that we elect who ideally look more like us. And what people like Nick Carnes and other political scientists show in his research on the U.S. is that the people who represent us tend to be wealthier, tend to be from upper class jobs. Um, And so I think that that likely holds around the world. And what we need to continue to do is make our democracy even stronger, not just in the United States, but in other countries, by electing people who really have the pulse of the public and know what the public wants on a wide variety of issues. And what's really cool is that public opinion research is getting to a level where we can downscale public opinion, by which I mean we can create estimates for districts all around the world about what the public actually wants in that district. And then we can show that the people who are elected to represent those people are not doing what the public wants. So I think political scientists have a really important role here to be taking public opinion polls and making them understandable to legislators across the world to say, hey, you know, this is what the public actually wants to do on a really critical issue like climate change and hopefully start holding them accountable to doing what the public actually wants. So what do you think is the likelihood that that kind of technology, the big data, will actually make uh, our planet more conducive to more accurate democracy? Yeah, I don't know. I mean, I've been working with the Yale Project on Climate Change Communication, as well as colleagues here at UC Santa Barbara and at Utah State. And uh, they've been doing these amazing maps for quite a few years now, focused primarily in the United States, but we've already done this for Canada, where we take climate change public opinion And we put it down to the state and electoral district level. So that could be in Congress, it could be at the state level, it could be a county. Um, And all that data is available on the Internet. You can also get this information for Canada. Um, And, you know, what uh, activists are increasingly doing is taking this information and showing up in the offices of their elected representatives and saying, hey, look, this is what the public wants you to be doing on climate change. And the reality is, I was reading a New Yorker magazine article a few weeks ago about Oklahoma, and it said that Oklahoma, there's not a majority of people who support, who believe in climate change. And I knew that wasn't true because we have the maps that show that a majority of people in Oklahoma do believe in climate change. And you just look at the fires in my community right now um, between Los Angeles and Santa Barbara, there's a massive fire uh, threatening Malibu and Thousand Oaks and other communities. And I am hopeful that people are starting to wake up to how threatening climate change is and the fact that it is here now. And I'm hopeful that this kind of data 
you know, it could be on climate change, it could be on gun control, it could be on minimum wage raises, whatever the issue is, that we can make this data representative at the district level and activists start using this data in their communications, that it will start to move the needle in terms of democracy and start making democracy more representative of what the public actually wants. You wrote the week before the election, whether the Democrats or the Republicans seize control of Congress after the midterms, you can be sure of one thing. They will have very little idea what laws the public actually wants them to act on. To what degree do you think that kind of disconnect is what leads to any publicly or popularly held perception that the the public, that the government doesn't work, that politicians are ineffective? Does our idea of the inefficiency of government in general, is that because of this disconnect between what we believe and what representatives believe we believe? Yeah, I think that's a really key part of our research to show that perceptions of staffers. So we were looking at chiefs of staff and legislative directors, but there's another great paper by David Brockman, a professor at Stanford, and uh, Chris Govren, a postdoc at Northwestern that does the same thing at the state level with uh, actual politicians. And we've already replicated our results at the state level too. So we can assume that what we find about misperceptions about what the public wants applies in Congress to the really most senior staff, chiefs of staff, and legislative directors, as well as at the state level with actual legislators. But these people are not aware of what the public wants on policy issues. And, you know, it shouldn't be surprising because in our research, we asked them, how do you figure out what the public wants? And they're not relying on public opinion polls. The only time that um, politicians are really looking at polls is during elections. And those are horse race polls. They want to know... You know, is Beto going to win? Is Cruz going to win? That's the question they're asking. They're not asking, hey, does my constituency want background checks for guns? And the reality is that across the United States, something like nine out of 10 people in most constituencies want background checks for gun sales. That is a really common finding across tons of public opinion polls. And we replicate that in our research. And yet Republican staffers are underestimating support for background checks for gun sales by 50 points, basically. So, you know, that's pretty disturbing. And, you know, we get into why that is the case. And we come up with two answers. First of all, staffers are substituting their own beliefs for the public's beliefs. So if you ask them, what does the public want on climate change? Or what does the public want on gun control? They just think about what they themselves want. And that is really biasing what they think the constituencies want. And the second thing, which probably isn't going to surprise you or the American public, is that interest groups are really distorting what um, these these perceptions are of public preferences. So the more an office is meeting with, let's say, the American Petroleum Institute, which is a lobby organization for fossil fuel companies, the worst job they do of understanding that the public wants action on climate change. Conversely, the more they're meeting with mass groups like the Sierra Club, for the League of Conservation Voters, these are environmental organizations in the United States, the better job they do of getting it right. So it seems like, you know, the more big business and uh, large lobby groups that represent corporations are meeting with or giving money to offices, the worse job those offices are doing at getting the public preferences right. So to what degree do those staff members, those congressional aides, to what degree their own beliefs reflect the beliefs of the member of Congress for whom they work? Are they simply trying to 
you know, echo what their boss says. Is this a self-reinforcing cycle of the same misguided beliefs being put into positions of power because the aides are trying to satisfy their boss and that person's political and conservative views? Yeah, there's a very interesting paper um, by a person named Jacob Montgomery, a political scientist at WashU, and another professor named Brendan Nyhan, who's now at the University of Michigan. And they actually look at the independent effect of staffers. And it turns out that, yes, staffers probably share a fair amount of their views with their elected representatives, you know, senators and congressional representatives. Um, But they're not perfectly matched, actually. And that's what you're asking now is a question that we have uh, in the back of our heads for future research, where we want to understand, you know, what what the staffers think. Does that end up affecting how the member actually votes in terms of roll call? We've done a lot of interviews with people in Congress, with these chiefs of staff and legislative directors. And through those interviews, they have told us that what they do is they take the correspondence or the meetings that they're having with different constituents, and they put that into the calculus that the member is voting on. So I do think that there is a fairly strong relationship between what staffers think and what the representatives think. But um, staffers actually exert some independent effects based on political science research. Um, And that's a little problematic from a democracy perspective, too, because, of course, we're not electing staffers, are we? And staffers may, in some cases, be more ideological um, than their members as well. So, um, so yeah, there can be a relationship between what staffers want and what their representatives want, and that's sort of an ongoing area of research. And you write that interest groups also played an important role in explaining uh, congressional staff's errors. Aides who reported meeting with groups representing big business, like the United States Chamber of Commerce or the American Petroleum Institute, were more likely to get their constituents' opinions wrong compared with staffers who reported meeting with mass membership groups that represented ordinary Americans like the Sierra Club or labor unions. Do those interest groups, do they actually reflect the beliefs of their members accurately. And to to you, what does the misleading nature of business interest groups when they are talking to congressional aides say to you about their members in big business? Yeah. So as I mentioned, I think that um, Congress is relying too much on one-on-one meetings to make a sense of what their constituents want. And there's an amazing paper by Josh Calla, a professor at Yale, and David Brockman, which shows that um, if you give money, if you're a campaign contributor, you're more likely to be able to get a meeting in the first place with a chief of staff in Congress. Um, so that is really problematic in terms of who is gaining access and getting their voices heard in Congress, and then how those offices believe uh, their constituents want specific policies based on those meetings. So I think that offices need to be using the public opinion data that's out there a lot more. And if they were to do that, they would do a lot better job of representing the public than just using these one-on-one meetings. Because, for example, the American Petroleum Institute does not represent my views on climate change, nor does it represent the views of the majority of the American public. This is a fossil fuel uh, association that has been involved with its member organizations in climate denial for over 30 years now, and really has been involved in stalling action on the climate crisis. So... The more that offices are taking money from those kinds of fossil fuel corporations, the worse job they do at predicting what the public wants on climate change. And that doesn't just hold for climate change, which is the issue most close to my heart. It also holds 
for um, gun gun control. So, you know, the NRA is known as being very powerful in terms of its hold on Congress and blocking action. Um, and that really cuts across what the American public wants to be done on climate on, on gun control, sorry. And I'm hopeful that with the most recent election, we've seen a number of people be elected who are willing to take on the NRA, people whose children um, have been shot. And so I'm hopeful that we'll start to see the needle move on gun control because it really is egregious how uh, misrepresentative Congress is of the American public on gun control. Is your research paper to any degree proof positive for the pessimistic and the cynical that our elected representatives' votes are bought? Or is this uh, phenomenon simply a reflection of true believers being rewarded by business interests whose beliefs is exactly what that person's belief is, that those two beliefs coincide? So is this proof Mm -hmm. positive that uh, their votes are being bought, or is that not what your paper proves? Yeah, so that is one of the thorniest issues when it comes to the conversation we're having right now. And actually, our paper does a pretty good job of getting some uh, smoking gun style evidence, which shows. So we run what's called a list experiment. A list experiment is a way to get people to tell you sensitive items that they maybe don't want to tell you otherwise. So in the pre-Trump era, you might use a list experiment for racism or sexism. These days, it seems like it's okay to just be racist and sexist openly, which is very unfortunate. But Um, We were concerned that uh, staffers would not want to tell us that uh, campaign contributors influenced how they told their member how to vote on an issue or how they thought about an issue, because that's one of the hardest things to identify. You know, if you just look at roll call votes, how members end up voting, it's pretty hard to see a connection with campaign contributions. So a lot of people have thought, well, you know, these PACs and donors are just giving money to people that already agree with them. But what our list experiment shows is that 45% of staffers say that they have changed their mind on an issue after meeting with a campaign contributor. That's a really big number. And, you know, we don't know how often this happens or what kinds of issues they're open to change their minds on. That's the limit to our research here. But it definitely is the smoking gun evidence that people have been looking for that campaign contributors are gaining access and that they are using that access to change the minds of offices and likely change how members are voting on bills. And I think, you know, if you just read the newspaper, that's not a particularly surprising finding. That's what a lot of American public seems to think. But within political science, it's been really hard to identify that effect for the exact issues that you outlined in your question. But yes, so we do have some of the strongest findings yet that suggest that campaign contributors are actually changing votes. You also point out that Democratic staff members tended to be more accurate than Republicans. To you, what explains why Democrats would seemingly be better at knowing what their supporters want? Yeah, so um, we didn't overplay that in our uh, research paper for two reasons. Uh, First of all, the Scovrin and Brockman paper that I mentioned did a wonderful job of showing the conservative bias in representatives, and we really replicated that in our paper. We show that It is true these uh, staffers think the public is more conservative than it actually is. But there's a second reason, which is, unfortunately, I'm Canadian and I'm fairly liberal. And so the questions that we put in our survey, we realized after the fact, were fairly liberal questions. You know, I wanted to know about gun control. I wanted to know about climate change, raising the minimum wage, et cetera. And so we didn't ask about um, ideas that Republicans would be more in favor of. 
So it's a little bit hard to know for all the potential issues in Congress, would Republicans get it just as bad as Democrats? So the questions that we asked, which were five questions related to gun control, climate change, infrastructure, the minimum wage, and the Affordable Care Act or health care, you know, we show that the Republicans get it a lot worse. And it could be the case that Republicans get it a lot worse across all the issues. Um, but that's a bit hard to say because we didn't ask about all the issues. So I think on the issues we asked about, these are things that Democrats are more on board with to begin with because of polarization and likely because of interest groups um, like the American Petroleum Institute saying the climate change is not real and dragging Republicans over to their side over many decades. Um, so it's a little unclear at this moment in time why Republicans are doing a worse job um, than Democrats at predicting public preferences. Leah Stokes is assistant professor of political science at the University of California, Santa Barbara. She co-published along with her colleagues Alexander Hertel Fernandez and Matto Mildenberger their research paper, Legislative Staff and Representation in Congress. Just a few more questions for you. Uh, You write how the... When it comes to the Affordable Care Act, one of the parties underestimated how much opposition their constituents had to Obamacare. As you and your colleagues write, Americans were divided on Affordable Care Act repeal. Still, Republicans assumed that their constituents were more favorable to Obamacare repeal than was actually the case. By contrast, Democrats underestimated their constituents' support for the Affordable Care Act. Why would they underestimate opposition to the Affordable Care Act amongst uh, the Republicans? Of all the policies to underestimate their constituencies' support, why the ACA's opposition? And what does that reveal to you about conservatism today when the only issue the public, the, the conservatives seem to get wrong to uh, underestimate the amount of conservatism there is, is on Obamacare? Yeah, um, I think that this, again, shows that um, staffers are using their own beliefs uh, when they're thinking about what the public wants. So on the Affordable Care Act, this is a very polarized issue. And I will say that the actual bill that was before um, Congress pulled extremely unpopularly. So uh, this question is more about a hypothetical uh, repeal than the actual bill that was put in Congress. Um, I think that uh, many Republican staffers view the Affordable Care Act as Obamacare and are very against, uh, you know, Obamacare and because of Obama. And they don't necessarily recognize that citizens uh, are benefiting from, for example, changes to pre-existing conditions, allowing people to have health care who didn't have it before. And you saw this with the midterms, where I believe three conservative states uh, expanded their Medicaid. Uh, and that was something that was kind of unexpected to happen at the ballot. So I do think that Republicans uh, believe that Obamacare is less popular than it actually is. And while citizens who may be racist or not like Obama for other reasons initially, I think, thought that Obamacare would be bad for them, when they see the way that in their actual lives it is benefiting them, I think that there's actually more support than Republicans realize. And you see this with the election results this week in Utah, for example, expanding Medicaid. So, um, yeah, I do think that this is kind of when the rubber hits the road and people get real benefits in their lives, they tend to become more supportive of it. And Republican staffers are probably still caught up in the uh, partisan battles going on in Washington and believing that their opinions is really what the public still believes.
Did you find any quantitative evidence, or will you be looking for this in the future, that suggests that the more accurately a, an elected representative represents their constituency leads to a more successful and a longer success, longer success within their political career? You know, the closest we got to that in our paper was we wanted to look at electoral competitiveness. So, you know, you might just think that if you've got a tight race and you've really got to get every vote, we've seen a lot of tight races this week, you know, those exist, um, that those offices will do a better job representing their constituency. And so, you know, that will leave them to be in office for longer. Um, and the reality is that we didn't find any evidence of that, which is pretty surprising given the sort of theories that we have about how American politics works. So you're not any better at getting public preferences right if you're in a really tight race than if you're very likely to be reelected year after year after year with giant margins. Um, and similarly, we looked at the staffers themselves and, and thought, well, what if a staffer has been in Congress for a decade or two decades, you know? Those people, they really get it. You know, they got their ear to the ground. They've been rewarded by their bosses, by staying in their jobs. They must really know what the public wants. And again, we found no relationship. So it doesn't really seem like um, competence is being rewarded in this system. Uh, and it's not really correlated with getting the perceptions right of what the public wants. Just a couple more questions for you, Leah. I've been really enjoying our conversation today. You write, if offices hear from only deep-pocketed interest groups, they're likely to miss out on the opinions of ordinary Americans. Back in 2014, we interviewed Martin Gillens and Benjamin Page, the authors of the then-just-released report, Testing Theories of American Politics, Elites, Interest Groups, and Average Citizens. Gillens and Page wrote that, Economic elites and organized groups representing business interests have substantial independent impacts on U.S. government policy, while mass-based interest groups and average citizens have little or no independent influence, which seems to echo what your research shows. How much does your research reinforce Page and Gillen's findings? Do economic elites and groups representing business interests have substantial impacts on government policy because their offices only hear from and only listen to the interest groups that represent the elites, the ones that Ben and Martin were talking about four years ago? Yeah, um, Gillen's and Page are the first citation in our paper. So we very much uh, square with their findings. I think they have done remarkable work to try to understand whose voices are being heard in American democracy. And it's pretty damning, their findings about, uh, you know, uh, wealthier people being more represented in the electoral process and in democracy than average citizens. And I think you see that very clearly in our research where we show, much like they do, that it's not public opinion that these staffers are really perceiving. They're, they're perceiving instead interest group positions and their own uh, opinions on things, which are likely influenced by interest groups. Um, so we find a negative correlation where uh, the more you get money from big businesses, the worse you do at guessing what the public wants. And the more you get money from small uh, sort of grassroots organizations, membership-based groups, like I gave the example of the Sierra Club, the better you do at, at guessing what the public wants. But the reality is, in terms of the amount of money in politics, there's a lot less money coming from these membership-based organizations than from these really large corporate groups. Um, and so it's not surprising that overall, 
uh, those uh, staffers are doing a bad job because they're hearing from businesses more, they're, they're getting money from corporations more, and that seems to be influencing what they think the public wants across a range of issues. So we definitely square with Dylan's and Page's findings. On that power of money, that leads me to our final question. Our final question for each and every one of our guests, Leah, is the question from hell. The question we hate to ask, you might hate to answer. Our audience is going to hate your response. And unfortunately, we only have a couple of minutes for your answer. I know that throughout your paper, it seems pretty obvious that you and your colleagues have shown that the power of money has had a huge impact on uh, representative democracy, on our representatives who are supposed to be representing us within our democracy. But how much has the market made democracy inefficient? Yeah, that's definitely a big and tough question. Um, You know, capitalism is a tricky one. Uh, It has some benefits, and it seems to go along with democracy in a lot of places, but it definitely has some costs. And, you know, I've talked a lot about climate change because that's the issue dear and dear to my heart. And people like Naomi Klein have written about the inextricable links between capitalism and climate change. And so it's really hard to think about how we get from here to there, how we get from this market-based system and a captured democracy and a burning planet um, to a place where everyday citizens uh, are being paid more fair wages, where the planet is not on fire and coral reefs are not disappearing, um, you know, and we have a more equal society. That's a really tricky issue, and I think it really cuts to the core of what we're grappling with um, across the world right now. But unfortunately, rather than dealing with those really core issues, I think that some of the wage stagnation um, has led to people to vilify one another and go back to sort of racism and sexism and and elect these strongman um, dictators, for lack of a better word. And it's really it's a really dark time, to be honest. And I'm concerned that um, climate change is going to exacerbate existing income inequalities and it's going to make it really hard for everyday citizens to pay for the additional costs of transitioning away from fossil fuels um, to renewable energy and low-carbon resources. Um, so, yeah, I, I'm definitely not the positive person to talk to about these things. I flew over a giant wildfire on my way home last night and just wanted to weep at the sadness of what is happening in California and what is happening all around the world. We literally, the planet is on fire. And it doesn't really seem like people are paying attention to that fact. So I'm hopeful that we'll all wake up about climate change, and maybe this is an opportunity to restructure our economic system to make them more fair for everyday people. And one of the taglines we use on this show, Leah, is the planet's on fire. So, yes, this is hell. <laughs> Leah, I really appreciate you being on our show with us uh, this week. Leah Stokes, Assistant Professor of Political Science at the University of California, Santa Barbara, co-author of the report, Legislative Staff and Representation in Congress. Thank you so much for being on our show this week. Thank you for having me. It was great. Keep in mind, most of the questions I asked today were written while I was incredibly high. This is hell. We have no idea who's going to be on next week's show. We have no idea how long it's going to be. If it's just an hour, we'll be doing some additional content throughout the week from our own studio. If it's uh, four hours, we'll be back here next week. All you have to do is go to thisishell.com, like us on Facebook, facebook.com slash thisishellradio, or follow us on Twitter at thisishellradio. And then uh, find out on Monday morning when we find out what the schedule is for next week. 
I'm not even sure if we're going to get a moment of truth with Jeff Dorchin, but we will have that posted early on Monday. I want to thank all of our guests on this week's show. Thanks to Leah Stokes. Thanks to Anna Pygott. Thanks to Tom Hansen and Pavlos Rufos, as well as Andrew Dobbs. This week's Hangover Cure is Max's Morning Reviver. You're going to have to go back to the podcast to hear that. Uh, I want to thank Alex Jerry for producing this week's show. I'm your bitter, blind, broke, gap-toothed radio show host, Chuck Mertz. This is not the media. This is hell, and there's only one way to get over all the problems that we've introduced to you on this week's show. That's by sitting down in the lotus position, turning your palms towards the sky, focusing on that burning white dot in the middle of your forehead, and saying the simple words, Everybody's stupid. My demon is on my butt. (laughs) My demon talks to me in profanity like a sailor. And my demon tries to knock me down. And my demon tries to put me on a hell ride.